It's Saturday, and you know what that means. It's time for Through the Years, Episode 60, Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other voice you will hear, as always, is Matt Feuerstein. And Matt, yes, I uh, changed up the intro a little bit. I recorded just now four times in a row just because I kept questioning myself, but um, the tone of it, even though I think I said it fine every time, but Matt, obviously with that intro being a little different this week, or this episode, um, yeah, we should acknowledge that um, Brody Lee, the John Huber, has passed away since the last episode, and although he was not a, uh, a very long-term an alumni of Ring of Honor, he did have a stay in there as part of Age of the Fall, and more importantly, he was just a wrestler that you can see with all the tributes, was seemed to be nearly universally beloved in a way few wrestlers are, and because of that, I feel like I almost don't have much to offer, because we did not know Brody Lee, but uh, I, I liked some of his work. But um, just that, yeah, that guy seemed like an amazingly well-liked guy. He was a talented guy who was just starting to get more of a spotlight put on him. It's an unbelievably tragic that he leaves behind a wife and two kids. And uh, my condolences to his family and friends. A- absolutely. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, what can be said that hasn't already been said? I mean, you know, likewise, my condolences to all of his loved ones, you know, all of his fans, you know, it was, you know, it felt just as horrible as everybody else. Um, You know, it's going to be many years before we get up to the ROH um, shows that he was actually on, if we ever do. Um, but, um, but you know, he, he I mean, he, he did actually have some standout you know, ROH performances for a little while, you know, in his brief, his brief run there. And, uh, you know, I, that's when I, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't too, you know, attuned to the entire indie scene. So that's when I first heard of him. Um, I don't know, Ted, were you familiar with him before he went to, uh, ROH? Yeah, this was the period where I was watching a fair bit of Chikara. Chikara, too, right, yeah. Uh, probably the year or two before that. So, uh, you know, getting to see him there, too. I mean, I, I remember watching, like, you've anyone that's been following the coverage of Brody's passing has seen probably a million people have retweeted that little clip from a match in Chikara with Tim Dunst where he just starts the match by putting a big running boot to his head and seems like he killed him. And uh, I remember watch, I, I I remember watching that like when I got the release of that show and just, you know, it's still, I it still stuck with me all these years later. Like, Holy shit. Yeah. I remember the first time I, I watched that. I remember how I felt, you know, and it's similar to how I feel now going, Holy shit. Yeah, no, he definitely made a big impression and it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a really horrible tragedy. Um, but I also do want to add, this is our first show of 2022, right? Cause it has to, with everything that's happened, it has to have been a year, over a year since the last time we recorded, right? It has to have been. Yeah. And of course, since the calendar has changed, everything is good now. That's, that's the way it works. If you have a bad year, January 1st, it's instantly good. Yeah. Being that this is 2022, I can confirm everything is good now. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Um, I'll tell you something that's good, Matt. And that's the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. We have our own feed feed now uh, through the years. If you look up T-H-R-O-H for the spelling for through, through the years on basically any podcast app, you will find us. And if you just want just us, that that is the feed. And generally our show goes up there a little bit early because Matt uploads it basically right after almost every episode, right after he edits it the night of. Um, 
But the Pro Wrestling Only Network continues to put up our show, and they have a bunch of great podcasts, too. And one other podcast we have to plug, Matt, something that happened between the last episode and this episode, is we appeared on uh, our friend Alan Cunahan, former guest of the show, Alan Forel's uh, show on the Pro Wrestling Torch with our good friend and other guest of this show, Justin Shapiro. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We both debuted on the Torch. It was great timing, and um, <laughs> perfect week to be on the Torch. Um, and... Um, yeah, I um, it was no, no, seriously though, it was it was a lot of fun. Well, I mean, it's always fun being on a show with Justin, and we've both done it a lot. And and um, you know, and Alan, you know, it's it's a, it's a special treat for me whenever I'm on a show with Alan. I, I he he was nice enough to let me on his shows back on the Observer site back in the day, um, uh, indie good old days. Um, but uh, but now uh, now he got he got me onto the torch too. He's really my ticket, my meal ticket. That Alan Cunahan. So uh, I thank him um, so, so much for in when he hears this in about 10 months. <laughs> We're riding the Alan train as far as it's going to take us. That's right. Um, onto the torch. Maybe, per, onto, you know, we rode it right onto the torch, right uh, <laughs> into the ground. No, just kidding. The torch is ascendant. <laughs> but, I mean, Alan show, you will have to pay for a torch subscription if you want to listen to that episode, but Alan's show is great, and if you like, uh, if you've heard the shows we've plugged in the last year, where Matt, I, and uh, Justin uh, do uh, uh, feared and hated Joe Gagne's five-star match game on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network, if you like the parts that aren't trivia and are just us goofing off, uh, this was basically us doing that for, I don't know, two and a half to three hours, I think, so... Uh, yeah, if you like that, yeah, it's def- if you if you enjoy what we have done in the past in that vein, um, I think you will it'll be worth a subscription. But um, there are a couple pieces of news that between the last Ring of Honor show and this one, but the first one actually it's something I just left out of the last episode. It was kind of edited for time and kind of I just scanned over. It. It's just a quick little note, but it's interesting to keep in mind as we watch this period of shows. It was from the Observer from the review of the last show we did. Uh, Dave writes, Austin Aries has a bad knee, but is working through it since he's getting by far the most high-profile chance of his career. So, yeah, that's something to keep in mind. I, I, I forgot to mention that last episode, I believe, but, you know, it, it's crazy. It's going to be interesting to, like, kind of see his performances where apparently, you know, he's like a lot of wrestlers uh, working hurt, but working hurt during, you know, th- this was a point where the spotlight was on him in a big way that it had never been before in his career. And uh, the other quick little story was Dave also wrote in the Observer around this time. The reason the Briscoe brothers have disappeared is that Mark still hasn't recovered from his shoulder injury suffered in a motorcycle accident that aggravated a, that aggravated a previous shoulder injury from high school football. Jay doesn't want to wrestle unless Mark does, feeling it hurts Mark. It's pretty clear that even though even a year back these guys looked to have a world of potential with their age, experience, and athletic ability, that they don't see to be seem to be looking in the direction of wrestling as a career and merely something they did for fun when they when they were younger. Which so that that was a little funny to read that doing the research for this, being like, well, I mean, they are still gone for in through the years terms quite a while, but like in real lifetime, uh, they won't be back that much. It won't be too much longer before. Well, back. another year. Yeah. Um, from this, I mean, yeah, a year. I mean, a year. I mean, a year can feel. Anyone that's lived through the last year can know a year feels like a long period of time. But in terms of their lives, like it's funny that Dave's already kind of thinking that basically writing them off when they were like barely into their twenties. When it actually, 
No, they're just going to take a year off and then come back. And they, yes, and they in fact had extremely long wrestling careers. Um, and um, but also still got to do other things, right? They like they they have their own business completely separate from wrestling. Like it's they, they just do both. Yeah, and uh, they've stuck with Ring of Honor the pretty much the entire time. So I yeah. mean. I imagine that also, you know, Ring of Honor is not the WWE type schedule where you can have a farm and work in Ring of Honor. But yep. that brings us to today's show, which has nothing to do with chicken farms. But uh, the Ring of Honor Trios Tournament 2005 took place March 5th, 2005 at the Pennsylvania National Guard Armory in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in front of a reported crowd of 600 fans. Um, Matt... This show was uh, – you, you, I brought it up on the uh, last show that I, this was the only um, six-man uh, tournament – six-man tag tournament Ring of Honor ever did. And you immediately corrected me and then immediately apologized for correcting me, which was something you should have done because you did absolutely the right thing. But uh, So this isn't a correction, but I did in fact take a look just – to be like, oh yeah, Matt's right, and my memory's like a sieve. So I looked at – in doing re- research for this episode – they did, in fact, you were right. They did um, do a second trios tournament in uh, 2006, although unlike this show, they did not brand it as a entire – they did not brand the whole show as a trios tournament. They called that show Tag Wars. It was headlined by a tag team title match. There was also some singles matches in it. It was only a four-team, two-round trios tournament. And then, Matt, I don't know if you remember this. In 2007, there was going to be a third Trios tournament show. In fact, that did seem like it was going to be branded Trios Tournament 2007. And that was the Ill, an ill-fated show late in 2007 where some guys didn't make the show due to travel problems. Uh, Jack Evans and some other wrestlers got into a car accident. And that show ended up scrapping what was going to be a 16 two-round um, trios tournament and instead uh, made that that turned out to be unscripted three. They gave completely shuffled the card. So this is the only show that ever ended up getting branded as a trios tournament, but there was technically two and on the books there were supposed to be three of these. Ah, okay. You're, you're right. Yes, I now I remember that. Tag Wars. Because I had thought that it was that show was called three, Trios Tournament 06, but I you are you are correct. And so we get to correct each other and now we're even. <laughs> and uh so the, for those who uh, aren't watching this this event, um, the background is it's a uh, six – most of the show, there's going to be a couple other matches, but most of the show is a eight-team, six-man tag team tournament um, or a trios tournament with the idea being it happens all in one night, all the matches, and the winning team, each member of it gets to book their own match in the future. Um, Gabe Sapolsky talked to The Torch after the show, and he kind of gave them some background to the show. Uh, the Torch wrote – Ring of Honor held a one-night six-man tag team tournament last Saturday night in Philadelphia. Um, Ring of Honor promoter Gabe, Sava- Gabe Sapolsky tells The Torch the concept for the show was th- the result of a brainstorm he had one night. Quote, actually, one night I was just thinking about all the great six-man and tag matches we had in 2004 and it just popped into my head to try and to do the six-man tournament as a concept show that was different than all our other shows, he said. I was very pleased with how it came out. The ring breaking, which we'll get to when that when that occurs on this show, the ring breaking hurt the semifinal matches, but they both still turned out to be good matches anyway. The competitive squashes in the first round were fun, and the finals and first round match with Samoa Joe's team versus Spanky's team were both great. I would consider making this an annual tournament if the DVD sales are strong. Then we'll go next, Matt, to the PW Insiders report from the show where uh, Mike Johnson wrote, 
While Ring of Honor often likes to take chances and try different things, the six-man concept simply wasn't one that drew fans, as ticket sales were slow going into the event. The promotion most likely won't try to do the idea again in the future, although the show was paced well and held held momentum from an entertainment point of view. So, um... I guess our, our thoughts on the overall show will become evident as, uh, as we review the show. But Matt, I, uh, the one thing I wanted to say off the bat and kind of get, pick your brain on this is, um, I don't think the idea of a trios tournament on paper is bad. And in fact, I can see why as a promoter, especially with Ring of Honor in 2005, this year we're covering, um, running more shows than they ever had, like wanting to find any kind of gimmick show where, the matches where you don't give away singles matches or tag matches like or why tag i mean traditional tag matches but it's still a draw i think that's like the holy grail for any booker like uh royal rumble or war games or survive survivor Survivor series Series, yeah exactly world war three everyone's favorite (laughs) battle bowl no (laughs) i I guess that's kind of the point is for every royal rumble there's like two battle bowls but i feel like you know bookers are for you know obvious reasons always trying to find those shows where it's like the gimmick draws not the matches and you don't really give away anything and i think this was probably an attempt to do that and the fact that they never really were able to build a show around completely around this gimmick again like as i mentioned when they do the show again in a year it's reduced to just instead of an 18 tournament it's just four teams and it's just part of a larger show rather than this where this really was not just so you look at the just the matches but how they basically put pretty much almost every great piece of talent they had access to into the tournament this was gabe really putting all his eggs in this basket for the show yeah, when you said there were, for every Royal Rumble there was two battle balls, I wanted it to be like there were sixty six battle balls, but I, um, <laughs> but, but I, uh, well, I guess I did do the joke anyway. Um, but um, <laughs> um, I, but I didn't interrupt you with it like I was going to. So um, no, but this, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I get what it did. I mean, Chikara, they made a pretty successful run of doing trios tournaments didn't they so yeah, and actually it, it's worth knowing this actually predated i mean the trios tournament by uh, two or three years when they started doing the king of trios although king of trios evolved out of a traditional tag team tournament called uh world tag grand prix i think mm-hmm. but i i guess the one difference is king of trios for jakar was their biggest shows of the year a lot of years but those were shows where they also basically like booked more outside names than any other show like they treat it like they're wrestlemania where you know gabe's approach here when you look at the booking is just basically use everyone we have there's no special fly-ins or anything it's just it's a really good roster but it's all regulars oh yeah definitely i mean it just didn't work as well but you know the point is that it's not a it's not a bad concept on its own but you could certainly see why it wouldn't be a big draw i mean there's a reason that vince mcmahon went away from the traditional survivor series concept when you know when he when he did because that wasn't a draw anymore you know king of the ring you know wasn't like all these um you know these 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 gimmicks are not the draws that like just having big grudge matches and big title matches are so but you know can't can't blame them for trying no it, it was a good try and we'll, we'll we'll talk about how we feel about the show but uh we can actually get right to the opening segment, which was we opened with Steve Carino backstage complained that he's on time for a promo and CM Punk and Colt Cabana, his partners for tonight, are late. Uh, Carino says he has 10 years in the business. Punk and Cabana have 10 combined. At this point, Colt shows up. Carino asks him where CM Punk. 
Colt says that Punk has, quote, gone loco in El Cabeza due to what happened in Chicago where uh, Jimmy Rave attacked his girlfriend, Tracy Brooks, and blinded him. Creel asks what happened on that show because Ring of Honor didn't book him, so I guess Creel not keeping up with results. Uh, Colt informs him that the embassy blinded Punk. He went to the doctor, and Colt says blue, bo- blue blockers are doing nothing for Punk. Uh, Colt says Punk told him that he'd be here tonight. Creel continues to be annoyed with this whole thing, saying, frickin' ego he's got. Uh, Creel does the uh, kind of work shoot thing usually where he's like, okay, I'm ready to cut a promo. And then he gives, like, behind the camera going, okay, three, two, one. Carino starts changes tone. He starts cutting a promo, saying that tonight's a big night for the Extreme Horsemen. He says there's a six man tag team, six man tournament tonight, and the winning team gets to book their own matches. Carino says if he wins, there will be more matches for his students, Ricky Landell and Alex Law. He says second, I'll get a raise. Third, I'll have one more match with Homicide. Carino then says if Homicide's team wins and his team doesn't, he's begging Homicide to grant him that match. Fourth, Creno wants a world title match. And then Creno says if he wins, Gabe Sapolsky's worst nightmare will come true as the extreme horsemen of C.W. Anderson and Simon Diamond will come to Ring of Honor. And that's basically the whole promo. Matt, a couple of weird things from this. First off, this is something that he's done more than this show, but I did find it interesting that uh, when Creno left Ring of Honor in late 2003 after a War of the Wire, that uh, barbed, wire, barbed Wire match with Homicide, Creno did a whole promo where he was like, you know, I'm done with Homicide. He wouldn't even shake my hand. Like, I never want to wrestle him again. No more hardcore matches. And basically, like, one of the main thrusts he's had since he's come back is to keep, like, hinting that he wants, or in this case, outright saying he wants a match with Homicide, and there's no real explanation why he's changed his mind about that and done a complete 180. Not a notorious 187, but a 180. And uh, I guess the other thing that I thought was funny was it seemed like, like, from the way everyone else talked about the stip for this tournament, the idea was the winning team, each member of it gets to book one match of their choosing. Carino just lists off, like, five demands he's going to have if he wins this tournament, like some that are not even like booking matches. Like if he wins this, I'm going to get a raise. It's like, I don't know if that's in the, uh, the that's, stipulations for tonight. That's, that, that doesn't really fall under the category of booking. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah, that's what confused me too, though. Cause when you mentioned that everyone gets to book a match, I was like, are you sure that's all it is? Cause like, cause, cause of, and it's cause of this promo. Cause Karina was like, yeah, I want like 12 different things. And maybe Karina was going to just like take all of Punk and Cabana's requests. <laughs> maybe like, was- maybe like Cabana was going to request more matches for Ricky Landell and Alex Law. Maybe he was going to do like the classic genie thing where you wish for more wishes. He was like, okay, Gabe, the one match I want booked is me versus Alex Law. And if I win, I get 20 more requests. Like, you know, the perfect crime. You know, you gave me a good idea because if we're getting to the stage of wrestling where we're booking like setting people on fire and pulling out their eye, you know, we might as well have like genies. And like, (laughs) maybe there can be a match where if you win, you get three wishes. Finally, a way to uh, freshen up money in the bank. It's just a golden lamp hanging yeah, from yes. a rope. But who, who would play the genie? Mm. Maybe mm. Um, Dijakovic. He seems <laughs> versatile. <laughs> For some reason, he seems versatile. No, they, they, no, they, they, they made him T-bars. That's why I thought that was funny. <laughs> he can do T-bar. He can do Dijak. He can do anything then. But um, – <laughs> We go somewhere else backstage to Dunn and Marcos with their partner tonight, El Generico. And I'll know, in, depending on what you want to believe, you could say this is his first appearance, his second, or his third because in Ring of Honor. Because let's go through this. Um, 
he technically his first appearance ever in Ring of Honor was not as El Generico. It was as um, the weapon, weapon of, of mass, mass destruction. destruction. The, ba- the yeah, bad, num- the bad one, which I thought was funny. <laughs> number two at uh, Final Battle 2004. Then he worked a do or die show in February, and that was a pre-show, so obviously didn't make the main card. So technically, if you want to put, you can say this is his debut in the sense that this is the first main card, like main DVD release he appeared at with his gimmick. Um, it's the debut of El Generico. It is not the debut of Rami. What was, what's his What's his name? I, I don't oh, Sable or Sable, something like that. You know, or yeah. Sami Zayn. Whatever yeah. you want. Man has many names. Um, so El Generico, I should also know, is very happy, and he's wearing a Tito Santana T-shirt, which I thought was I don't know, just amused me for some reason. Ra- uh, Mark, uh, go let's on. say Ra- Rami Sabe or Sebe. Is uh, I, there's not a pronunciation thing on uh, Wikipedia, but that is his name. I don't want to be disrespectful by yes. not correcting the record, but yes. And I'm a bad Canadian because I, as a fellow Canadian, I should know the pronunciation to one of the best Canadian wrestlers of his generation, but yes. I do not. Um, so anyway, he's backstage with uh, Dunham Marcos. They're cutting a promo. Marcos says they're going to keep. Th- the momentum going from winning Scramble Cage, and he apologizes to the Carnage crew for knocking them out of Ring of Honor for, I think it was either 60 or 90 days by making them take the fall in that match, which was the stip. But uh, he says, we had to do what we had to do. They go for a three-way high five, but Generico misses. So, man, just a quick, short, goofy promo kind of continuing to build the upcoming Carnage crew, Ring Crew Express feud. It's noteworthy. I will say it was... Oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, the one thing I thought was funny was um, Marco saying they're going to keep the momentum going from winning Scramble Cage, where I think the show after they won Scramble Cage, they wrestled um, Fast Eddie and Matt Seidel, a team that had never been together before, and lost immediately to them, and then the team immediately broke up. So, like, I don't know if their momentum is still as yes. high as it was. Yeah, they don't have momentum. That's how that works. Um, <laughs> but um, I will say it was noteworthy how, you know, I mean, not it's understandable, but noteworthy, you know, how much a smaller Generico was at the time. You know, how much, you know, bulk he's put on since then. You know, that's, you know, just not, nothing good or bad about it. Just it was it was notable. And one thing I know, I didn't realize that, I, I mean, I guess you, you get so used to watching him in WWE, which still is to some degree the land of big guys. But like when I, w- later in the night when he wrestles, like I was shocked at how much taller he was than everyone else in the ring. Granted, some of the guys in that, and, you know, Homicide, the Ring Crew Express, not exact. well, actually I think Dunn's not short, but um, he, he definitely seemed taller than pretty much everyone in the ring. And um uh, yeah, well, well, is it, well, maybe maybe that's why maybe that's why he was hired by WWE before uh, Kevin Steen was. <laughs> he's 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 so tall. So um, that brings us to the opening match of the first round and the opening match of the show, the trios tournament first round match. Generation next of Austin Aries, Jack Evans, and Roderick Strong defeated Anthony Franco, Davey Andrews, and Shane Hagedorn in one minute. 12 seconds via a triple pin. Uh, all three members of Generation Next hit moves in succession, each on a different member of the Ring of Honor students. Uh, uh, Jack Evans did the 630, Aries did the Brain Buster, and uh, Roderick Strong, I think, did basically like a crucifix into a uh, uh, backbreaker. And um, Matt, uh, so always weird when I throw to you for thoughts on a match when the match is like one minute long, but that is exactly what I'm doing. What did you think of this incredible, epic one minute, 12 second match? <laughs> it's about as much of a squash as you could possibly get. 
um, you know, Strong just destroys everyone with backbreakers and chops. Andrews, I think, gets like one suplex on him. Andrews has a mohawk here, which I did not ever remember have being a thing, but apparently it was. And um, yeah, then Generation X hit all their finishers, get the pin. Um, I would say in his brief display of offense, Strong looked pretty good. That's pretty much the only thing you could say about the match. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely think in the recent shows, like Strong is starting to get a little more, I don't know if it's confidence or just more comfortable. Yeah, I would, I would say so. Know some more. Confidence, skill. I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. He's, I mean, uh, clearly Gabe is noticing it too. He's being featured more. Um, I think his look is better. You know, he's in better shape. His hair and his trunks are more like flattering on him than the stuff he was wearing for most of 2004. Um, I think that's part of it. I think, you know, yeah, this is, I mean, 2005 is his breakout year, so it makes sense that he is breaking out. So um, not much to talk about the match because it was just a minute squash, but I guess there is something we should talk about now, which is probably, there was a lot of weirdly noteworthy things on this show that's not, for a show that's not that well remembered, I think, but um, I think the biggest one is the commentary situation because, although it did not happen in this match, um, the commentary had a big change because this was the first ever show that Dave Prezak did commentary for Ring of Honor, and um, he would do his... He is going to be gone for the next two shows. He's uh, Mark Nolte has two more shows left after this one, the next two shows. But then after that, uh, Dave Prezak becomes the regular uh, announcer for Ring of Honor, and he'll be with us for the rest of our run after we've seen so many commentators come and go, Matt. And um, yep, those, the way they handled commentary on the show was strange because – uh, they kind of had guy. They kept almost basically had a three man rotation that kept changing throughout the night because uh, it was always two people commenting at one point. But uh, during this match, Gabe says, "I'm supposed to be joined by CM Punk, but he's not here." Uh, Punk shows up a minute later and says he's in one of those famous CM Punk moods. He says, "He says his eyesight is horrible. He has 80 percent vision in his left eye. He can't wear contacts. He has a scratched cornea, a pulled hamstring, and I love." He, uh, he then he adds a beat up girlfriend like that's his last thing after a pulled hamstring. Um, he says I also have a very large chip on, on his shoulder, and so basically the next match is when Prezak comes in, and so throughout the night some matches it's a uh, Punk and uh, Prezak commentating, some it's Punk and uh, Gabe, some it's a uh, uh, Prezak and uh, Gabe commentating, and. This is not the first time Prezak has worked in Ring of Honor because we've seen him on, on Midwest shows doing a backstage interviewing as well as ring announcing. But in terms of being a commentator, this this was the first uh, show for him. And immediately the best commentator they've had. And, um, you know, the, especially the matches that he does with Punk, probably the best commentator team they've had so far. We're getting very close to the era where we will have nothing to say about the commentary. I feel like it's coming in the not-too-distant future. Once, uh, you know, really once Gabe and Punk no longer are doing commentary, there's, you know... Prezak is not the one, is not the type, at least on his ROH performances, to try to make funny or amusing comments, and yeah. neither is Lenny Leonard. So, um, so yeah, so the era of us commentating on the commentary, enjoy it while it lasts, because we don't have, probably, we don't have too many more shows like that. I, I, I was, I still remember how excited people were when Dave Prezak, uh, came onto the commentary team, and I guess to give some background for people that I imagine most of our listeners know who Dave Prezak is, but you never know who's listening. So just in case, you know, uh, Dave Prezak, he, you know, big 
Shimmer wrestling fan. He's probably best known today. Well, definitely, I would say best known today for being the founder of Shimmer, which is, you know, the, the big U.S. In, women's wrestling indie. And obviously, our friends do a Shimmer Herstory, the podcast about that. So you can get a lot more information about it there. But he's always been a big champion of women's wrestling. But at this point, he was best known. He had he hadn't quite yet started Shimmer as a the commentator for IWA Mid-South, among other indies. And previous to that, he had done a little bit of managerial work. He had his own wrestling newsletter at one point. And um, Prezak, around this time, I would say we used to consider probably one of the best, if not the best, commentator indie wrestling. And Matt, I'm going to admit something right now. Um, I was always a little bit disappointed by uh, Dave Prezak's uh, Ring of Honor commentary. I, I feel like he is still one of the best commentators Ring of Honor has ever had, and I thought his commentary was still solid. But I think people were so excited about Dave Prezak because if you've never listened to his IWA Mid-South commentary, which is kind of where he first made his name, um, IWA Mid-South was a company where they were a little more laid back. They didn't have – not every match was about pushing these intricate storylines and everyone didn't have a character and all. You know, there, there were storylines and angles in IWA Mid-South, but there was also just a lot of mammoth marathon-long shows. Oftentimes, Prezak would just commentate without a regular partner and it would just be a rotating crew of whatever wrestlers felt like had an opening to commentate for a couple of matches with him during the show. And Prezak, what made him – I felt made him great – was he was really good at being kind of like a laid back, like feeling like he was your friend just watching the shows with you, where he would crack jokes, but he would also still have a lot of knowledge and be able to take things seriously at the right point. Some people didn't like him because they felt like if it was a match that he didn't like, maybe a hardcore match that he wasn't too into, he might do too many inside jokes and crack jokes and not pay enough respect to the match. Sometimes with his friends, he might get a little into inside jokes, but I felt like normally... Prezak did a really good job with that, and I felt like Ring of Honor, a lot of people really didn't like Gabe's commentary. I think we're on the record on this show as being that, well, Gabe was not a great commentator. I don't think we feel he was as bad as a lot of people did, but for a long time on the message board, I remember as a lurker of the Ring of Honor message board, people would just say, you know, get rid of Gabe. Please bring in Dave Prezak. Please bring in Dave Prezak, and I had watched a little bit of IW Mid-South. WA Mid-South, so I knew how good he could be. And so I saw he got brought in. I was so excited. And I think what something I realized watching these early shows he does is you were not going to get the IWA Mid-South Dave Prezak because Ring of Honor was a show that asked a promotion that asked something different from him. You know, he, like you like you mentioned, he wasn't going to do a lot of joking on these shows. He, he Ring of Honor is a quote-unquote serious promotion. That's one of the reasons I liked it, but it was all about really doing the hard sell of angles, of faces and heels, of acting like everything was a big important moment. You know, it wasn't it, laid back isn't a word isn't a phrase you would use to describe Ring of Honor. And also I think one other thing that maybe took a little from Prezak and then I'll just, I know this is a long-winded thing, but I will just say is um, I think he did lose a little something commentating shows not live in the building. And I feel like that's something, you know, no commentator I, I think is going to be quite as good as they are live as in a in a setting where they're doing post-produced commentary days or weeks after the show. And I felt like Prezak did lose a little bit on that. It just he didn't quite have the same energy. Some Some commentators can fake it better. I think – Lenny Leonard is a commentator. We'll see when he comes in later this year. He, I think he does a better job of kind of adapting to that. But overall, even though that sounds really harsh, all I just said about Prezak, I would still say still one of the best 
commentators Ring of Honor I've ever had and still a good commentator, but I do feel like anyone that's judging him just for his Ring of Honor work, you should go back and see on something like independentwrestling.tv. They have a lot of old IWA Mid-South shows. You do get a completely kind of different look at Dave Prezak. Like he has different skills that he doesn't get to show in Ring of Honor commentary. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the simple way to, to say it is just he's much more muted on the ROH shows. Like, he's just, you know, he's not there to be the show at all. Like, he's not there to, he's not there to be the entertainment, which a lot of times the commentators are there to be the entertainment. I, um, I would say, like, in some ways, like, in the old days more than you know, now, commentators were the entertainment. Like, if you were listening to Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan, they were a large part of the entertainment. You know, like you can watch like WrestleMania four and be entertained, and it's m- much less what's going on in the ring, and much more like the interaction between Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse Ventura, right? And um, and like nowadays, WWE commentary isn't really like that at all, right? A little bit, AEW sometimes, but WWE really not at all, right? And um, ROH. Never, I don't think, wanted the commentary to be the entertainment, except when CM Punk was on commentary. I think he was definitely trying to be entertaining. And with ROH, you would just, like, the entertainment value for the first three years was just, you know, kind of finding, like, weird and bad and, and like, <laughs> bizarre things that the commentators would say, but not super intentionally. When Dave Prezak came in, you know, he was clearly tasked with just, like, being there, describing the action, not making a show of himself. And, you know, for a few months when he was still working with Punk and Gabe, it didn't completely take. But once he started working with Lenny Leonard, who sort of had the same MO, at least in the early years, that's what happened to ROH commentary. It just blended into the background. That's why I say it's not going to be for much longer that we're going to talk about ROH commentary. Because if you when we, when we get to those mid-2005 and 2006 shows... They go, they go out of their way to not make themselves the show. Um, they are just there to describe the action, and they do it in a very sober and straightforward way. And that is very different from what we've been dealing with. So that's why I, that's why I say not much more time for us to make fun of the commentary. And also, I, I guess one more thing I would say is probably, you know, once we get into the Lenny Leonard era, even though he takes a break at one point, but like, you know, it's one of the first times I feel like in Ring of Honor history where Prezak and Leonard will actually get like the room to be a pair of commentators for the promotion that actually gets to develop something resembling chemistry. Like, because there's been so many changes in the commentary in Ring of Honor, and when guys did get the runs together, they don't always fit well together. Like, Prezak and Leonard, you know, are two guys that are good at commentary that do, I think, eventually kind of settle into, like, a familiarity that's comfortable with each other. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they say Gabe and Doug Gentry, like they had some degree of chemistry. They just yeah. neither of them were like particularly good commentators. They just, you know, they they had their charm though. Um but um but yeah, you're right. There's a lot like I don't think Gabe and Mark Nolte have chemistry. Um I think that they got As something, but they, they, they're, they're, it seemed like at first they might have had chemistry, like the first show, and it seems like it went de- like they lost yeah. chemistry throughout yeah. the run. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think Punk and Gabe have something, you know, just because Punk likes to mess with Gabe so much. Um, yeah, occasionally when Punk makes Gabe laugh, like that, that, that there's a bit of a charm to that because right. he does seem like one of the few guys that can kind of like make him break occasionally, which is always a cute thing. Yeah, and of course, I'm um, Donnie B and Steve Carino. No, just kidding. <laughs> 
I love that Creel, even on his shoot interview, he was like, yeah, Donnie B, uh, we didn't have chemistry. Like, he outright says it. Creel outright says it. Like, just, yeah, we, 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 we didn't work together. Um, what can you say? Yeah. So uh, that's that. So I, uh, it's a little bit of t- conversation, but I do think it is kind of an important milestone in Ring of Honor history. Um, we go to the Trios tournament, another first round match. Uh, Steve Carino and the Second City Saints of CM Punk and Colt Cabana uh, defeated the embassy of Jimmy Rave, Oman Tortuga, and the weapon of mass destruction number three with Prince Nana in their corner in 457 when Punk made um, weapon of mass destruction number three submit to, quote, a variation of the Anaconda Vice. I think people, if you if you watch this match, you will see Punk basically got him in a headlock and uh, – the the weapon tapped and submitted before uh, he could do anything else with it. And then afterwards where he continues to hold him in the hole, he's like, oh, yeah, I got to do the Anaconda Vice and then starts to try and like maneuver his arm. But basically he submits to a headlock. Um, Matt, um, I, I'm going to give this match to you too for the first reaction just because <laughs> you didn't you didn't get too much to say with the first match. But one thing I want oh, to that, say. Oh, thanks. I got a lot to say on this one. No, just kidding. I know. I know. Just a bounty here. But, um. <laughs> I wanted to say uh, I tried to find out who the weapon of mass destruction number three was, and there's probably some obvious place where it was, but I could not. So I did uh, – I turned to our friends at an honorable mention, that podcast. I shot them a DM. I asked them, do you know who it was? And uh, Shane Hagedorn, despite, as you can see, wrestling on the show and also filming this show, he did not remember. He said, send me a picture I might recall. He thinks, he's fairly sure, that it was H.C. Loke. Um, ah. wearing a mask. Yeah, that, you know what? That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah. uh, so don't don't put Shane or me as a hundred percent saying that, but definitely it it kind of seems. Uh, we'll talk about later. HC Loke, even though in storyline he was banned from you know working Ring of Honor for a period of time, he was backstage working the show. Um, so yeah, it, it does check out that it makes and and his body does. I mean, it, it's a bigger guy with a bit of a stomach. It it does. It, it does make sense that it could be H.C. Loeb. So, yeah. um, Matt, now with that incredible revelation, what do you think about this five-minute match? Well, I will say that um, it, they, they, they did have the Weapon of Mass Destruction do a lot of the work for the, for the heel team. So it, do, it does make sense that it would be Loeb because, you know, Loeb is a bit of a workhorse um, and, you know, a, a vet of uh, ROH. So I feel like – I feel confident in that making a lot of sense. Um but yeah, I don't know. They they did they did some moves, you know. Punk, you know, goes right after um, the embassy. Right as they start coming down the ramp, he attacks Jimmy Rave, which is good because it wouldn't make sense if he just like you know that you know obviously Punk should be really really pissed off at Rave after blinding him and um, st- you know hitting a rave clash on his girlfriend. So um, so they so they start off the right way, but like in the match, um, they you know they they go they go after Punk's leg. Punk has it all taped up. Um, they do a couple of like like Carino gets a little like a mini hot tag. He takes down all the embassy members, does a neckbreaker DDT combo on Oman and the weapon of mass destruction. Um, you know, uh, Carino gets his own like version of that. Basically, basically the baby faces get a few chances to run wild. Um, and um, Punk Punk tag. You know, Rave is always trying to run away from Punk, um, but Punk gets him and. Rams him into the rams him into the corner, punches him repeatedly in the face, choking him. He's yelling, "I'm gonna fucking kill you! You understand me? You're a dead man." Which, um, you know, hey, that's that makes sense. Um, so good job there. So nothing wrong with the match, but 
nothing particularly right with it. Um, actually, you know, like maybe I'm maybe actually being too generous. I thought it was not a very good match. It was, it was, it was kind of crappy, but I liked, you know, it did get over that Punk was trying to kill Rave. I almost don't judge the match. I almost feel like it was more of an angle than the match. Because, yeah, the whole point of this match wasn't to have an entertaining match, although they did wrestle a bit. But it was all from Punk attacking Rave as he makes the entrance to not even letting him get in the ring at first to, like you said, you know, telling him he's going to fucking kill him, choke him with his boot. This match was all just a way to further the Punk embassy feud and how show how much Punk hates Jimmy Rave. Uh, the credit I will give to Punk is for people who hate in wrestling when – a heel does something bad to the face, and then the next time encounter each other, they just do like a lockup or a regular like in like high impact wrestling moves. Punk doesn't do any of that. As soon as he sees Rave make the entrance, he goes and attacks him. He throws punches. He chokes him with a boot. Like he screams at him. As Matt said, like he he treats this like you should treat somebody if you absolutely hate their guts and want to just destroy them for doing for attacking your girlfriend and blinding you. So. But again, you know, because of that at one – because of that, it's kind of like – and it only lasting five minutes. It's – again, it feels like more of an angle than them trying to give you an entertaining, really like full-fledged match, which you can get away with if you have a some other really good matches on a show. We'll, we'll see if they can get away with it on this show. <laughs> um um, oh, do you have something to say, Matt? No, I know. I was I was say, yeah, you're right. It's a bit of an angle. I will say this though. I can't think of too many ROH shows that start off with two lesser matches than the yeah, two that two start, matches. you know, back to back. And actually, I mean, maybe I should have held that till after the next match because, you know, that's you know. Well, we'll get to, <laughs> let's let's talk about the next match, I guess. But go ahead. Sorry. So. Yeah. Um, after the match, Punk refuses to break the Anaconda Vice until Colt Cabana steps in to get him to uh, break it. And I guess the one other thing to mention is, yeah, the reason why we had a weapon of mass destruction number three instead of Diablo Santiago is because you might just just make the obvious assumption Diablo Santiago was hurt. Yes, he was. So uh, it couldn't work. But um, we cut to backstage where Samoa Joe is standing with Brian Danielson and Vordell Walker. That's his team for tonight. Uh, Joe talks about how winning the chance to book any match he wants would be the first step towards his goal of becoming the first ever Ring of Honor Triple Crown champ. Uh, Joe, Joe at this point cues Vordell to talk, but Danielson immediately just steps in front of him and barges in before Vordell can get a word out. Danielson says all he wants tonight is for his team and Homicide's team to meet in the second round so that he and Homicide can fight some more. Uh, at this point, Sugar Sean Price runs in and he says, Jay Luthal's been messed up really bad. You guys gotta help. Um, all three guys, all of them run down the hall. They find Jay Lethal's laying on the, on the ground. He's got a black eye. Uh, Jay says someone hit him from behind, but he didn't get to see who. Uh, Matt, the thing I'll mention here is Jay Lethal does have a black eye, and that apparently is a legit black eye. Uh, in doing research, he apparently got a legit black eye from Homicide in an NWA New Jersey show they had done the night before. So, I guess they just decided to incorporate that into uh, the show tonight. And they did it in a clever way, and it actually does pay off in future shows, so I liked it. Yeah. I didn't like that he had a black eye. That's, you know, I, <laughs> but... We're not in favor of uh, black eyes through the years. But, no, uh, no, 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 no. I want, I want Jay Lethal's eye to be nice and healthy. Yes, exactly. Uh, 
our third match in the trios tournament first round, the Rottweilers of Homicide, Ricky Reyes, and Rocky Romero, with Julius Smokes in their corner, defeated El Generico and the Ring Crew Express of Dana Marcos in eight minutes, 45 seconds, when Homicide pins El, Gemer- El Generico after hitting a lariat. So the interesting thing in the booking of this was originally Ring of Honor even announced on their website that it was going to be the carnage crew of Logan DeVito and BJ Whitmer versus the Rottweilers, but the whole idea was since the Carnage crew was out of Ring of Honor for 90 days for taking the fall in the scramble cage match that the Ring Crew Express won, they couldn't be booked, and it is a nice little booking thing. They got replaced by the guys that beat them and got them sent out of Ring of Honor for 90 days, Donna Marcos and El Generico. Um, well, that doesn't explain Whitmer, though. No, I'm just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, not no. You don't have you don't have to know every where BJ Whitmer's whereabouts was on this night. It's okay. God damn it! No, I should have researched more. Um, <laughs> no, I would say this is the most substantial match of, of the night thus far, but that isn't saying much because it's still a fairly slight match. I mean, it's not even nine minutes. It's like a jo- um, It's like it's like a WWF '90s jobber to the stars match. Yeah. Um. I, I think the interesting thing about this match would be. Uh, the first half of the match is everyone kind of pairing off and each doing like a, a sequence, you know, with one guy and then tagging out and doing a new sequence. And everyone on the El Generico Ring Crew Express team from the first half of the match kind of holds their own in their sequence at first. So you go, wow, like I, I thought this was going to be another, you know, three minute squash. And instead, you know, they actually get to go kind of 50 50 with them at first. But then in the second half of the match, Marcos get, gets isolated for a minute or two. We get a hot tag, and then we get the finish, and then we get a big definitive win. So by the end, yeah, they they lose still in under nine minutes. Um, talking about El Generico, this is our first time really to get to see him on Through the Years. He was only twenty at this point. It, it's hard to really make much of a judgment because I, I, what did you think? He, do you think he got maybe? 60 to 90 seconds of ring time maybe in this whole match right yeah he basically just did a few offensive moves but i did think his moves looked good like he 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 definitely looked like he fit in in the 60 to 90 seconds he had and again remember he's only 20 years old at this point um i would say the match was decently entertained like slightly above average but again going to what you said we've probably have never seen a, a ring of honor show open with like two matches so unsubstantial and then this one, you know, wasn't enough more to really – again, we're, we're now kind of three matches into this show and three matches into this tournament, and we haven't really seen something that felt like a real honest attempt at, like, a meaty match, so to speak. Yeah, man. Sami Zayn, another wrestler I just realized is younger than me. Oh, boy. Um, but <laughs> when you said that um, – nah, just he's a year younger than me. But so that, that means he's your age. Um, but, um, yeah, so um, – yeah, this was yeah another match. That's what I was gonna say. Like, it's actually three matches in a row that were very like completely unsubst- unsubstantial. I guess is what I would say. Just um, so that's why I thought like this show really wasn't off to a great start. Like it was just um, three nothing, you know, kind of nothing matches um, here. I you know I wonder if the trios tournament would have been better if they had like really went for it in like a lot of the matches in the first round instead of just one of them. But um, but yeah, so I won, one of the most noteworthy things, honestly, in the in the match was Gabe calling Dunn by his full name. At one point, he calls him Kevin Dunn. Is that? Is yeah, it, is, he did. He, he did that right. Is I his that, yeah? Is his name Kevin Dunn? Is and is it the Kevin Dunn? No, just kidding. Um, maybe it's <laughs> no, Devin. Maybe it's Devin Dunn. Um, I think it's Kevin. I'll look it up. But yeah. do you think? I, I think that is. If so, do you think that's why he was just done? Like. 
Although I guess he didn't ever said Marcos's full name either, for that matter. Yeah, I think may- maybe the only thing I could think of is because like, they were trying to do a little more with the Ring Crew Express at this point, that maybe they were going to decide to make them like full people, like do an opposite Vince McMahon, where they're like, we want to get this guy over, so we're going to give him a first name instead of taking <laughs> it away. Um, but yeah, that, honestly, that was the most noteworthy thing of the match. Um, you know, and, and I guess fact- and again, and El Generico being there and doing a couple good like cross bodies and stuff, but. Um, uh, the other thing I noticed, Homicide, um, in his, in the finish, the, the lariat that he hit, he hit Generico with from behind was weak, like very weak for Homicide. And I don't know if it was just miscommunication or what, but then he hit him with a more like normal good lariat after that and got the win. Um, you know, nothing bad, but just not much of a match. I thought Romero was continuing to show more charisma. That's always good, but just another not much of a match. The, the impression I got from watching that, and I wonder if you agree, is that he, the first lariat was supposed to be the finish, but Generico wasn't facing Homicide, and so Homicide kind of pulled up because maybe he didn't want to throw a lariat to a guy that maybe he was wondering, is he even expecting this? But then after he hits that lariat, it's like, I, I almost felt like he was like, okay, now that you know what I'm going to do, I'm going to hit you with what should have been the finish to begin with. But you know, maybe maybe that maybe that's me overthinking things. But it kind of looked a little bit awkward in that sense. Makes sense. So, Matt, um, okay, it is in fact Kevin Dunn is uh, Dunn for Dunn Marcos' full name. Do you know what uh, Marcos's first name is? A little bit of trivia here. Um, I was trying to think if there was like a famous wrestling figure whose last name was also Marcos and give him that name. But uh, but no, no, and I would it's just a be video a video game character, Nintendo character. Samus Marcos. <laughs> Link Link Marcos. Kirby Marcos. Oh, nice. It's a good name. Yes, Kirby Marcos and Kevin Dunn. So that is, in fact, they are full names. I, I, I knew that at one point, but I had long forgotten it. Now I, I, probably, did. I probably did, um, too, yeah. So that brings us to the final match of the first round of the Trios Tournament. Brian Danielson, Samoa Joe, and Vordell Walker defeated James Gibson, Nigel McGuinness, and Spanky in 23 minutes, 49 seconds, when Joe made Spanky tap out to the rear naked choke. Um, Matt, before I uh, go to you, you finally, we get a match to sink our teeth into. I get to actually talk uh, about a match this time. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give you some some thoughts about some other, what some other people thought about the match and see you can compare and contrast how you feel. First off... Going back to uh, Gabe Sapolsky from his comments to The Torch on the show, he said, uh, regarding the six-man tag main event with Samoa Joe, Spanky, James Gibbs, and American Dragon, and by the way, that is not the main event, Torch, uh, Gabe says, this was the standout match of the tournament, and it was just great stuff. Samoa Joe and Brian Danielson are among the elite workers right now and true stars in Ring of Honor. James Gibson is so good and is a huge addition to the Ring of Honor roster and someone I see as a main eventer for us as for as long as he wants to be in Ring of Honor. Spanky is an invaluable addition and is back to being motivated the way he was in 2002 before WWE killed his spirit. So it's great to have him back. Nigel McGuinness is truly breaking out to the next level. And Vordell Walker is the best prospect in wrestling right now. You put these six in the same match and you can't go wrong. And then we'll go quickly to the Observer, which is clearly just repeating things that Gabe said, because this sounds very similar. Um, Dave wrote, 
This match was said to be Joe and Danielson and Walker's first round win over Spanky and James Gibson and Nigel McGuinness. With all the recent WWE signings, Dave writes, it's kind of amazing that Nigel McGuinness, who is tall, has a good physique and can work great, fell through the cracks. Gibson has said, has been said to have been super impressive. Not that he does anything spectacular, but everything he does is good. And Spanky is getting back to his old form before WWE beat his love for the business out of him. So I think Dave's <laughs> just telling everyone at this point. Yeah, WWE beat Spanky's love for the business out of him. Um, but Matt, what did you think? What, do you think maybe – I don't know if this gives away – I mean, whatever. It's not a spoiler. You're going to hear the whole rest of the podcast if you're listening. But No, they're going to stop listening if they find out now. <laughs> I mean, do you think this was the best match of the uh, tournament? Yes. Easy yes for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I'll talk about the match. It was, it was, it was, you know, they, 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 they really went for it, like, which I appreciated. I don't think there was any other match in the tournament, and possibly some of that was because of the ring breaking in the next match, but, um, I don't think there was any match in the tournament where they, um, where they, like, went for it as much as they did in this match. Like, really just decided we're gonna have a really good match. And they, and they did. Um, when Spanky's music hit, someone in the crowd yells very audibly, best song ever! Um, like it's a, it's a good song. I, I mean, I like it, but you know, I don't know. Um, there's a, the obligatory SmackDown sucks chant, which you, you, which you, I guess you have to have whenever James Gibson and or Spanky is there. Um, but, um, my favorite part, honestly, as good as the match was, my favorite part was at the beginning when Dave Prazak is like, I'm in the booth because Jimmy Bauer had to use the bathroom. I was like, <laughs> What? I come up with a better excuse. I don't know if that was like a prank or what, but like, like maybe he really did. Maybe he was like he's like he had the runs, and and Prezak was just like I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that. Um, yeah. It happens. You know what happens yeah, yeah, to people. I mean, it does. Um, but has that um, ever happened? Can you remember of an instance where that's ever happened in a live wrestling show where someone like, had to like leave the booth to take a shit? Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I as a as a Vancouver Canucks hockey fan. There was once a playoff game where our star goalie, Roberto Luongo, did not come out for overtime, and everyone was like, oh, God, he's gotten hurt. And then, and then he came out, like, minutes later, and it was like, no, he had, like, diarrhea. He had to go to the bathroom. Well, I, and, think, I think what happens to wrestlers, as far based on Urban Legends, I think they just shit their pants um, or go under the, the ring. Andre the Giant's career is just stories about that. But, um, no, but, I, yeah, it's remarkably, I cannot think of a moment where that's happened to an announcer. In any capacity, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's, it's crazy to think, but I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe people just don't eat until after the show, just because they're afraid that might happen. Um, but um, or maybe people in wrestling just happen to have really, you know, good regular <laughs> bowel movements. Um, anyway, we've been on this too long. Um, uh, but Punk and Prezak are on commentary, which to me is. Like, it's probably the best ROH commentary team they've had up until this point. Like, they they have good chemistry even when Prezak's not being, like, full Prezak. You know, Prezak is still doing a good, like, professional job of calling the match. Punk is, you know, Punk is, is good. He's, he's, he's entertaining. You know, he was good when he was at commentary on WWE also. Um, I think they would probably, you know, if a company could get him back, even if it was just to do commentary, I feel like they'd benefit from it. Um, now, I mean, you know, even if he doesn't want to wrestle. But... Anyway, um, you know, we get some cool stuff. These cool, like, they do a lot of these, like, pair-offs. Um, like, early on, we get Gibson versus Danielson, and the crowd is really into it. Um, Danielson, for the record, is back to wearing his, like, maroon trunks and boots instead of the black trunks and the kick pads. 
you know, I don't know, I guess that kind of indicates that he's not going to do that style in this match with the kicking and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, Punk is talking about how – oh, God, another commentary moment I forgot about. Um, Punk is talking about how Joe is mentoring Walker like he did Lethal. And, and Punk – and I quote – this is a CM Punk <laughs> quote – Seems like Joe's got a thing for the young kids. Um, <laughs> that's CM Punk, not me. Um, he, that has to be like he's messing with Joe, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Joe yeah. was one of his best friends at this yeah, point. Yeah. So, like, like, I mean, if Punk is not smart enough to realize what that sounds like, I would be shocked. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, you know, that's something. Um, but, you know, so like Danielson and Gibson pair off, then Joe and McGinnis um, pair off, and then... Um, you know, they do their stuff, and then um, Nigel Nigel and Danielson pair off for the first time in ROH history, which is on its own a, a historic moment, and and they're, um, you know, they, they, they do a pretty good job in their, in their, in the stuff that they have here, you know, they kind of show a little bit of that chemistry that they clearly have. We even get some Danielson versus Spanky, so these, these, the, 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 all these pair-offs, I think, are a really fun way to start the match. Like, just like, you know, all these pair-offs, really, that everyone wants to see, you know, and really most of them involve Danielson. Danielson versus Gibson, Danielson versus Nigel, Danielson versus Spanky. Um, then Gibson and Vordell pair off, and, you know, I have to say, you know, as much as Gabe puts him over, it is amazing to see Vordell Walker in this mix. Not because, you know, any, you know, I'm, I'm not assessing his talent level, I'm just, just assessing his stature in, in wrestling, you know, looking back now, and it is, uh, you know, obviously nothing compared to anybody in this match. Um, so it's interesting to see him in there. It's definitely a one of these things is not like the other kind of moment. And again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm insulting Verdell Walker. It's just, you know, very clearly certain people, the, the rest of them have much bigger legacies in wrestling. Um, but, um, um, Nigel does a pretty cool move. He like he snapmares uh, Vordell so his leg hits the ropes when he flips over. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, you know, uh, Vordell doesn't really get a lot of offense in on Nigel because he's like he, he's chopping Nigel, but Nigel kind of hulks up and and forearms him. Um, then uh, Nigel does his headstand, and Vordell goes to charge at him, but Spanky cuts him off. Then Gibson stops Danielson, so go so Joe goes and kicks Nigel in the headstand, but Nigel avoids that and kicks Joe out of the ring. And then, like a minute later, Nigel does the headstand again to sucker in Joe, but Vordell pops in the ring and drop kicks Nigel while he's in the headstand. So I liked the way that they like played with the whole headstand thing. Uh, it made Nigel look like a star because he was the focus of the match, and it actually gave Vordell a moment to get one over on uh, on Nigel. So that was pretty good. And then Vordell does a standing moonsault. So this is, uh, you know, definitely Vordell looks better here than he did in that one match against Joe. Um, he's still obviously the weak link in the match, but he is definitely, I'd say, he looks a lot better here than he did. Um, so um, you know, the, the match keeps going. Um, there's a spot where, like, Joe is, um, like, Joe is, is working on Nigel, and he gives him, like, the, the, the you know, that, that running boot scrape thing that he does in the corner, and he, he does it, but he kicks Gibson, who's on the outside of the ring, and Gibson doesn't sell it, and I was really confused, and Punk tries to explain, well, what happened was, was Gibson jumped off the apron to move Nigel, 
but it didn't really seem like it looked that way. Like, I, I think that was just a botch, but it was weird because it was like Joe clearly kicked Gibson and Gibson just kind of like, like walked away. That's, it's rare for those two guys to make such an obvious botch because they are, you know, really good. Um, so then it turns into another, you know, schmaz. Uh, Danielson does the airplane spin. Um, he's, uh, he's spinning Spanky, so he kicks McGinnis in the head, and he keeps going. Then he drops Spanky and does the airplane spin on Gibson, and Gibson kicks both McGinnis and Spanky. But then, since he's so dizzy, he does the airplane spin on Vordell. So they even got some comedy in the match. The best part is when he tries to do one on Joe, but Joe <laughs> is too heavy, and Danielson keeps trying. And so then Danielson stops, stands up, looks at Joe, and then just falls over on his back. And uh, it gets like genuine laughs from the crowd. And the yeah. best part is Joe's reaction. Like when Danielson's trying to lift up, like he just stands there like with no expression, like, God damn, like, just, <laughs> what are you doing? Buddy? Like, yeah. I, I, I didn't mind the comedy in a match like this. You know, it's a first round match. The crowd loved it. I, I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. I really like that. Um, so then we get Joe actually chasing Spanky around the ring, and Spanky pulls Mary Kate, the photographer, the the one who found the uh, Tom McGee versus Bret Hart match, <laughs> in the way, like you know, very very um like Macho Man with Elizabeth style, like just pulling him pulling her in front of him, and so um, so that kind was a cute sp- too. Yeah, I was, I was, like he, I, like it wasn't like oh he's hurting her, but it, I was surprised like kind of rough pulling her. I thought. Wow. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Like that's. I mean, you know, I, I, maybe you know, maybe they, they maybe they knew they were going to do that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but so, Vordell has a pretty cool spot where he he holds Spanky up like in a wheelbarrow position, and while he's in that position, he kicks him in the chest, and then hits the ocean cyclone suplex. You know, I I don't think Vordell looked bad here at all. Um, Joe worked. Uh, Joe's working over Spanky. Spanky does the surfboard. I mean. I mean, Danielson does a surfboard on Spanky, uh, while Joe and Vordell knock Spanky's teammates off the apron, but Spank- but Gibson does get in to break it up. Um, Spanky actually hits a, a flatliner on Danielson and gets the hot tag to Gibson, and Gibson is just, like, so into this hot tag. He's just doing all the big moves, the suplexes on Vordell. Um, I can't, at that point, I, I kind of lose track of who the legal man is on Joe's team, Um but um, you know they do a bunch of big spots. Um, Danielson whips Gibson, but Gibson just dives through the ropes to tope Joe. Then Danielson goes to run the ropes, but Nigel pulls it down, so Danielson falls outside of the ring. Gibson then goes for a top rope drop kick, but he kind of slips, so he lands a standing drop kick instead. Um, Fordell hits an over the head belly to belly and a cabrada, but Gibson goes for the choke and Joe cuts him off. Um, the, um, Vordell comes in the ring, gets a German suplex on Gibson for two. So I guess Vord- I get, at that point, I'm like, I guess Vordell is legal. I don't know because um, he tagged in Danielson. Um, so um, uh, they, uh, then we get uh, Danielson and Nigel, and they trade uh, big European uppercuts. And in a big moment, for the very first time ever in ROH, Nigel McGinnis hits the rebound slash jawbreaker whatever you want to call it lariat although it's to the back but still it counts and he gets two on that and i actually say the first time he ever did it, it's pretty pretty good move even then like it looked good um it's interesting seeing it too because we saw like one or two shows ago i think when he was wrestling uh colt cabana he does the rebound off the ropes but then he does just like a takedown into a pin out of it and it's almost like he was kind of figuring out like oh this is cool but what if i did this with it 
And then, like you said, yeah, this time it's the first rebound Larry, but even here, he's doing it from behind. It's like he's kind of figuring it out, like, match by match. Oh, like, I could do it this way, and this would probably be the best way. And it doesn't become one of his main moves for a long time after this, a few, at least at least a few months. Um, but, um, you know, um, N- Nigel um, gets put in the cattle mutilation, but on the way down, Nigel tags in Spanky, which I thought was a cu- cool spot, so Spanky breaks up the cattle mutilation with a frog splash. And Joe comes in, slaps Spanky a bunch of times. Spanky goes for the slice bread number two, but Joe pulls him down and gets him right into the choke. Um, and Vordell and Danielson run interference, and Spanky taps out. Um, so there were a couple of minorly sloppy moments, but I just thought this match was full of just fun sequences. Good previews of future cool stuff. Um, just uh, a lot of fun stuff. Um, you know, like I said, Vordell, you know, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't fit in per se. But he was fine. He had some good moments, and I thought you know the the other five just really carried it to pretty high level. So I thought it was a very very good match. Uh, yeah, I thought this was the best match of the tournament too. Um, if I had to give it like a rating, I would probably give it like three and a half to three and three quarters, like right around there. Which fair, is fair. My hat, what I feel about the rest of the tournament, if that's my match of the tournament. But I mean, it's it's a very good, pretty darn good match, and. Yeah, I just think, I just think it's so much I just think it's so much fun like that that's what I really you know oh like, yeah it's you know what I think that, and I've used this description a couple times before but you know what it felt like to me was like when people always go to a WWE hell show and they say oh man like these really talented guys you could tell they were just having fun and kind of making it up like like that's what this is it's just like so many really talented guys and and you know there's not really a story to this match you know it's, there's no face heel structure obviously there's no feuds in this really in this match it's just it feels like r- five really talented guys and Vordell Walker who's not terrible but you know certainly not on their level and they're just kind of making things up and having a good time and just enjoying like oh we get to work with each other. We get to like we have a lot of time. We get to do whatever, and there's a little bit of everything. Like you mentioned, you like the comedy, and I agree. Like I felt like it was not a comedy match, but I liked that there was some comedy within it. With like Nigel being keeps getting into hit by the airplane spin. Like there's like I felt like there was a little bit of everything in this match. There was like some smooth mat work, a little bit of comedy. There was a little bit of moves off the top rope. There was a few some hard hitting, some grappling. Like you got a little bit of everything, and. It was fun. I guess it just doesn't rise to that great level because it really did feel just kind of like guys going out there and having fun and not really trying to do an incredible match. The other thing I will say is I felt like Nigel was the star of this match, which is really impressive when you consider the other talent in this match, like Joe Danielson, maybe two of the best workers of their era. And Vordell Walker, I will say... um, I don't think he looked bad in this match, apart from one point near the end where um, he's selling Dizzy in the ring, and James Gibson goes up to the top to do that top rope move, and you can tell Wardell, like, while he's selling, walks away to the center of the ring, and James Gibson sees that, and he has to, like, drop down and just run over and do, like, a running drop kick. You can tell, like, that's kind of like a rookie mistake where Gibson was clearly expecting him to be in a position, and he just takes himself out of it. But, I mean, that's just a rookie move, but overall... Um, Vordell Walker, he didn't do anything wrong in this match, but what I would say is I found like, like you said, this match, there's a lot of fun and basically any combination of workers in this match is pretty fun, except I felt like every time Vordell Walker got in the match, the momentum just stopped and even the crowd got quieter and granted, 
he's also a relative unknown. Yeah, la- lack of star power point. was a big part of that too. Yeah, but I just felt like every time he tagged back out, he didn't get to do that much of this match. The match picked right back up again, and. I, I hate to use this criticism because I feel like so many people use this criticism for wrestlers I like, and it's kind of a hack criticism. But Voidel Walker kind of feels to me at this point like a create a video game creator wrestler where he's kind of got like a bunch of different elements, but I don't really know who he is. Like he does a bit of MMA stuff. He has the MMA gloves. He does the big kicks. He does some like cool Japanese suplexes like the Ocean Cyclone suplex. He can do a little bit of flying. He does some moonsaults here. You know, he'll throw some hard strikes and he's even his look. He's just the muscular bald headed guy with, you know, again, the MMA gloves. Like I feel like he's just this mishmash mix of things. It's kind of like, I've seen him in a couple matches, and obviously he hasn't had a lot of time to really show himself so far in Ring of Honor. But if someone asked me after these couple performances, like, what makes Vordell Walker Vordell Walker? You know, what's unique about him? I still don't really have an answer. Like, I don't know what he is, which is probably not a great sign for, like, introducing him to people. But on that, at the same um, time, in, the, in his defense, isn't this still really just his second match in ROH? Yes, I mean, obviously he had a pre-show match, which apparently from the live reports was his best performance, and then he had the Joe match as part of the Foley angle, which, what what was that, like three minutes, and it was basically him getting squashed, and then this, which he doesn't get that much match ring time in this match, like it's a 23 or whatever minute match, but really he's kept in on very short bursts, I would say. But I I want to defend him here, because he's in a really tough spot to be in with like these top top level like some of the best wrestlers in the world at the time in this match and he's still very new and he's asked to like you know doing a, a six man match with lots of like three way spots and stuff that's like complicated you know it's more complicated than doing a singles match like you have to remember a lot of different things you have to be timed correctly and i think he holds his own like i i mean i again i don't think he's you know i think he's clearly the weak link but i think he i think he'd p- perform better than most would well, I got a question for you, which is, uh, like, if you were in a wrestler in Fordell Walker's position, like, would you want to be in a match like this? Because on one hand, people will say, look, you get the rub of teaming with Joe and Danielson, and you get to wrestle Gibson and Spanky and Nigel. He has three really talented guys. But on the other hand, like, you, you kind of look like the odd man out. Like, it's an, it's almost like an unfair comparison, you know? Yeah, like, of course. Put, put into that – in a match where you're, like, the one rookie – with that kind of embarrassment of talent, like even Punk in the commentary for this match early on, even he seems like really odd by just like look at how much how many like really good guys are in this one match, and so like, do you think in a way that this almost hurt him, like putting him in this position to be compared to these guys in his second match, you know, and really in a sense his first real main card match in Ring of Honor? I think it could have hurt him. Um, if it was me, I absolutely would not be want to want to be in that position. But at the same time, I guess that. You know, someone who becomes a star in, in in like an entertainment business probably has a lot of confidence, right? And so they're like, "Yeah, put me in there." You know, I can I can do yeah. it. And I um I you know I don't think this match hurt him because I don't think he did badly enough to have that happen. I think he did fine considering, and I think so. I, I think he got out of this match at certainly at no worse of a standing than he went into it. Well, Matt, I, someone I. I Got, I didn't plan on coming out this way, but I got a surprise for you, Matt, because someone disagrees with you. You know who that person is? Um, is Wardell it, Walker. Uh, I have an interview quote. I was going to say Kirby um, Marcos, but okay. <laughs> Kirby. 
movie. He's sucking up things and shooting them out. Um, no, so interview with uh, Vordell Walker did an interview with Alan Wojcik, I think. Uh, I probably butchered that last name. I apologize for that. Alan, in this interview, asks Vordell, on March 5th, 2005, you were part of the trios tournament with Samoa Joe and American Dragon as your partners. Please talk about working against James Gibson, Spanky, and Nigel McGuinness. And Vordell's answer I thought was interesting. He wrote – he or he I just answered, the first match in the six-man was really difficult for me. I didn't feel like I clicked with the first group of guys like the second group I wrestled against. Maybe on a different night I would have had a better showing against Gibson, Spanky, and McGinnis. Nothing against those three. I just had an off moment. Now, I'm probably not as high as, as, on his performance in this match as you are. Not that you are like crazy over the top. But at the same time, I also probably not as negative on as Wardell seems to be because he didn't do anything really wrong in this match. Like, and he just so I'm kind of surprised that he outright says like I had an off moment. I didn't click. Cause in fact, I don't the think big he looked that bad. In fact, the biggest botch that I noticed involved Joe and James Gibson. So, you know. Yeah, in fact, I would say Gibson had an off night, even though he was still pretty good. But for a guy that's like always like I think his best aspect is how he's just such a crisp professional. Like he had a couple of drop kicks that didn't quite hit. He had this weird Joe spot you talked about. Like this was of the three matches we've seen him in so far in Ring of Honor. This was easily the uh, I would say his worst performance. Not that, again, it was bad, but if anyone had an off night, yeah, like you said, it was probably Gibson. And, um, anyway, uh, the only other thing I want to mention in the match is uh, there's at one point in this match where Nigel McGinnis takes a drop, uh, drop toll for Samoa Joe and instead of dropping like right to his like stomach and face, like a face first bump, like everyone does, he instead just like falls right on his knee, which I actually thought was a really cool way to take a drop toll. And I don't know if I've ever seen too many guys do it that way, but I thought it was, I thought it was a cool little spot. And again, I think Nigel, Nigel continues like he is really, really good. Like you can really see he every match, like especially in this match, you could tell he kind of rose to the occasion where he was like, I'm working really good guys and I'm going to be just as good or, in my opinion, like better in this match than everyone else in this match. Yeah, I remember the first I remember the first ROA show I went to, which was a few months after this. And Nigel wrestled Joe on that show. And I think I left being most impressed by him because, you know, I wasn't a super regular, like, watcher of all the ROH DVDs. So I'd seen a lot of, like, the Joe matches um, and some of the Punk matches, but I'd never seen a Nigel match. And I was like, man, that guy is really good. Like, he could be a big star. Um, And you could see it here. And it's funny because we've now read multiple quotes from The Observer, and this is early 2005 before Nigel's really broken through to even be a main eventer on the indies. And this isn't, you know, not just this episode, but there was another episode where Dave wrote, like, I can't believe Nigel hasn't been signed by WWE yet. Like, already this early on in his career, you know, people were like, this guy seems to check every box they would want. And why don't they sign him? I guess that was kind of, in some ways, sadly, that was the kind of the story of his career, which was... Why hasn't they haven't they signed this guy? We we still don't know um, the answer to that question, do we? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's it's a sad story, but yeah, he, and definitely he's one of those many guys where if he had come up today, he'd be signed at like at this point. Like if, if Ring of Honor was at working like the way it is at, at the time we're covering it in twenty twenty one, like Nigel would be signed by Ring of by uh, NXT already by this point. Like oh, yeah. he would never, we would never see the next two or three years of Nigel. Right. Um. 
So after the match, everyone's shaking hands, and Trent Acid walks to the ring to booze from the crowd. Acid says there should be no booze for him. The fans are cheering guys that aren't even from Philly. Trent says, I'm from Philly. I made this area. He reminds us that he quit Ring of Honor recently, and because of that, he can come back whenever he wants because he's that good. I didn't know that's how quitting things work, that you can then just <laughs> show up anywhere, anytime you want. But um, Rockin' Rebel at this point comes to the ring to try and calm Trent down. He tells him, hey, the fans shit on both of us. It ain't worth it, buddy. Uh, Spanky comes back in the ring at this point, and he says, there's a reason Trent isn't wrestling for Ring of Honor, and it's because of shit like this. Uh, Trent then pie faces Spanky. The two brawl until everyone from the match that just happened come back in the ring, separate them. Trent flees to the crowd. He flips everyone off as the crowd chants, don't come back. And Matt, I'm not sure, but I don't think he ever did come back, which is funny because this match seems to this angle seems to set up a Spanky Trent Acid match that I don't think we ever get. I this brings up like kind of a, a thread that I'm noticing in early 2005, and actually on the next DVD that we review, there's going to be more of this, which is Gabe is setting up stuff that never pays off like there's like you know and i you know like he had planned clearly had planned a lot of stuff for 2005 that doesn't come to fruition now it seems very likely that what does end up happening in 2005 is better than a lot of this stuff that he had planned um but mick foley obviously doesn't play out in full um this thing with trent acid um after the next match there'll be another thing and then there's another thing on uh back to basics the, the the show the week after this so it's just interesting to see. Like, I don't remember that so much in ROH of just like a lot of like kicking off of angles that never really reach a conclusion. Yeah, and uh, I probably should have done more research, but there's only so many hours in the day. I don't know what happened. To, I don't know what the story behind this Trent Acid thing is. On the surface, it feels like something Gabe was doing with other workers for, at, at this time, like with Matt Stryker, which was when a guy's push wasn't working out, he would kind of demote them but still book them only in their area because we very briefly had the Matt Stryker run, which I don't think it's over yet, where like when they worked Dayton, they would still book Matt Stryker, but they wouldn't book him anywhere else because they'd have to pay transportation or whatever. And I feel like this is kind of setting up that Trent Acid would just work Philly shows, but again, I don't think he even does that after this. So – yeah, I don't know what happened, but it's just to me it's just interesting because there's a few examples of this going on at the same time. Yeah, and I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on those too, especially cuz I forget the one you're referencing on back to basics cuz again, my memory is terrible, so I'm I'll, I'll be interested in seeing what happens there that doesn't go somewhere. Yeah, it'll be it'll um, actually, you'll you'll be very amused when you see it. <laughs> <laughs> PW Insider wrote from the live notes at this point in the show, Allison Danger came to the ring to cut a promo, stating that the prophecy would never die and would rise again. She was holding a photo of Christopher Daniels, and uh, Mike, uh, Mike Johnson writes, she was good going back and forth with some ringside fans. This did not make the home release. I feel like there were multiple shows I think we've covered where she did this between matches and it didn't make the home release. That was just something they were doing for the live crowds, I guess, where she would just between matches scream that, you know, prophecy was going to come back, blah, blah, blah. And I, I assume this means that she was pro that, um, ring of water probably knew by this point that Daniels was coming back eventually, because if she's coming out holding photos of Christopher Daniels and stuff, you know, she's, you know, you're teasing something at this point. Um, Next up, in a trios tournament, semi-final match, the first of two of these, uh, Generation Next of Austin Aries, Jack Evans, and Roderick Strong defeated Steve Carino and the Second City Saints of CM Punk and Colt Cabana. 
And 14 minutes, 48 seconds when Jack Evans pinned CM Punk after he hit the ode to the Bulldogs. Um, Matt, I know you placed the request. Um, you wanted to read this, and I couldn't think of a better person to read this. So, to give a little background, what is that before supposed to the mean? Match, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to hear you say these names, Matt. Um, before the next match, uh, Steve Carino's personal ring announcer Brian Regal goes to do the ring introductions, but Colt Cabana steps in. Colt says that in honor of Carino and the trio's turn, he has a list he'd like Regal to read of people Colt would like to have a three-way with. Matt, if I had known that you were going to read this, I would have not spent the time transcribing every one of these names myself as well. Thank God, though. Uh, Matt, take it away. It is a long scroll of names. Yeah, man, that's a long list. Dude, I'm just looking at him like, wow, he wants to have a three-way with so many people. You know, it's interesting to see who, like, they booed and stuff back then because I bet a lot of them, like – would not get booed in 2021 from a wrestling audience. Like, for instance, he starts by Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. Then he says Madonna and Cher, which get a lot of boos. And I don't think people would boo Madonna and Cher now. Would you boo Madonna yeah. and Cher? I wouldn't. No, um, I, I look, I think it would be cool to have sex with Cher right now. <laughs> Take that for what you will. Uh, I wouldn't say no, Matt. So, no. No, notice that you left out Madonna. Um. <laughs> Beggars can't be choosers, but I don't know. Cher seems cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you could turn back time. No. Um, <laughs> um, that was so good. We did not plan that. The um, next one is Ginger and Marianne, RIP. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Bertha Faye and Alundra Blaze. Makes sense. Peg Bundy and Marcy Darcy. Um yeah, you know what? Sounds good. Um, Hillary and Chelsea Clinton. I feel like that would get the same exact reaction now, which is, you sick fuck. Um, yes. Kelly Kapowski and Lisa Turtle. Lillian Garcia and Mike McGurk. And then he goes through, he, he does these little like motifs. So he goes, the Gilmore Girls, the, or the Glamour Girls, the Gilmore Girls, the Gastineau Girls, the Spice Girls, the Nitro Girls, and any girls that have gone wild. Um <laughs> So you know what this this Cole Cabana he is uh, he's you know he's he's got some he's got some comedy chops right there that that, that was a good little little run um, of all those groups uh, Trevor between the the Glamour Girls the Kilmore Girls the Gastineau Girls the Spice Girls the Nitro Girls and any girls that have gone wild um, what would uh, what would your preference be Oh you put me on the spot here uh, I gotta go Gilmore Girls because I, I I love the dialogue Matt and um, I mean, technically, for all I know, I may have been with a girl that has gone wild. I don't know, Matt. Um, well, you know, it's that, been so many, so many, Trevor. <laughs> you just got you just an endless list. I'm sure one of them must have. What, what would you pick? Um, well, I had to Google who the Gastineau girls were because um, I don't remember that at all. Um, but now I know. Um, you know, it's got to be the, the glamour girls. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no. Um, um, uh, you know, you know, I got, I have a soft spot for the, for the Spice Girls. Is, is that a, uh, is that, is that a, is that a disappointing answer? No, I was going to say, in a sense, isn't that like the best value? Cause you're getting like the most girls. Well, it's a, it's, well, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a three, it's a three way. So I feel like you got to pick two of them. Oh, oh yeah, you're right. Huh. Or, or really, really they have to pick you. Um, <laughs> and they wouldn't. Um, so, I mean, they're. You know, very famous people. I don't think they'd pick most of us. Don't I? Don't feel bad about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
Well, I mean, you're only a slight step down from David Beckham, Matt. Don't don't sell yourself short. <laughs> That's true. Just a slight step down. Um. Anyway, this uh this this whole segment is much bluer than I've ever been in my life. Um, this episode has taken some weird turns between this and the discussion of have any announcers ever gone to the bathroom with the runs? <laughs> That's right. Oh, well, 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 actually, we've had that confirmed that one of them did on the show. Um. All right. So continuing, we got jumping bomb angels, Charlie's angels. But is it the 70s Charlie's Angels or is it the 2000s Charlie's Angels? You know, I mean, I guess they're both pretty good. Um, the Olsen Twins, which is – that's a hack answer. you got to admit, that's hack. Yeah. Um, I actually Googled just to make sure they were legal age when he did this, and they were. Not by much. Yeah, not they- by much. Um, the Sweet Valley High Twins. Now, he says, quote, the black chicks from Sister Sister, and I'm like – did did he have to say black right there? I think people know who the girls from Sister Sister are, but yeah, there are no other two girls that are like associated with each other from that show. Yeah, um, the Duff Sisters, the Pointer Sisters, any two hot nuns. Which <laughs> how would you know? And this one's my favorite, and I think everyone's favorite: B. Arthur and Estelle Getty. Um, I think we all love the Golden Girls, do we not? Yes. And yes. Uh, now. I feel like the uh, the more popular pair would be B. Arthur and Rue McClanahan. I mean, Betty White and Rue McClanahan, excuse me. Um, but he went with the, the whole mother-daughter thing. You know, I, I get it. I get it. Um, um, uh, Suzanne Summers, Circa 3's company, and Suzanne Summers, Circa Step by Step, which is even more problematic probably than the mother-daughter thing. Somebody... Uh, being in a threesome with themselves. Um, yeah, isn't that just masturbation then? Yeah, but if... Is it even a three-way math if you do it with two people that are the same? <laughs> or is no. it just sex? I don't know. I don't know. You're the you're the sex expert. You're the... Well, so, only scientists can know this for sure, Matt. You're, you're the resident um, sexual dynamo in this group, so you have to answer that question. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, Let's not get into that, but uh, I, uh, you know what? You, you might be surprised between the two of us. Uh, um, dark, dark Journey and Sweet Sapphire, and CM Punk stops him and yells, she's dead! Um, yeah. Jackie Brown and Foxy Brown, which, okay. Um, That'd be my pick. Yeah. Of all of these, I think I would... If I could have any of these, that might be it. And again... That might not be sex. That might be. That might not be a three-way. Again, yes. going by my new potential theory. That's true. That's true. I mean, it's, it's the character versus the actor. But anyway, uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. April Hunter and Slick Wagner Brown, which gets punked to, of course, in a you know well-timed moment, grab the mic and say, "Don't hate, appreciate." That was a very solid applause line, I have to say. Continuing, sensational Sherry and Peggy Sue, another example of your um, conundrum, Trevor. Um, Wilma Flintstone and Betty Rubble, which, um, you know, they're cartoons, so it'd be interesting to see how that works. Um, Laverne and Shirley. R.I.P. Yes. Marsha and Carol Brady. R.I.P. Um, right? I, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure. I was never a big Brady Bunch person before. I never even got, I mean, it was obviously before my time, but I never got even, got into it even from like a rerun, like, kitsch kind of point of view yeah i do remember the first uh brady bunch movie was good yeah it was like a, it was like a parody um yeah. uh um uh florence henderson who plays carol brady is in fact deceased so r.i.p um the fabulous Mula and may young r.i.p I, 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 is, is it problematic for me to say r.i.p to that i don't know <laughs> 
Snickers is going to remove their sponsorship <laughs> of the show. Yes. Um, Fashion Queen Barbie and Skiing Vacation Barbie, which of having seen those Barbie dolls, I don't know what you'd be doing there. Um, and um, you get what I'm saying. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this and it ends on a very corny but timely one. It says to end version one of this list by taking it to the edge. And then I think he says El Dandy and Lita. Is that what he says? Yes. Which is I. I don't get it. <laughs> no, I, I had to look this up. So, um, if you Google El Dandy and Lita, there are some. I almost don't know if I should talk about this. There are some. I didn't. So don't. You know what? Don't. <laughs> okay, I, I'll just say there are salacious rumors that may or may not be true. If you were to look that up, but apparently this was a thing that certainly Colt Cabana was aware of. That some fans were aware of. That I was. I was not aware of. Yeah, and and of course this was timely because this was when the whole Matt Hardy Lita Edge love triangle thing was going down, and it was the talk of the wrestling world. So at the time, I guess this was edgy, pun intended. But um, now it just seems kind of not as funny as the rest of it. But uh, yeah, good list. Be Arthur, Estelle Getty. You did leave out. You you missed between the Bradys and Moolah and Mae Young, Anne Heche and Ellen DeGeneres. Oh yeah, and I wrote that down. I just missed it. Yeah, Anne yeah, Heche and Ellen DeGeneres. And and I thought to myself, what about Portia? But I guess they weren't together yet. I don't know. Exa- no, yeah, the, Anne Heche was pre Portia. Obviously, that was Ellen's rebound. Um, but yeah, what a. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this was probably one of the funnier bits of cult cabana comedy we've seen so far. I would say there were some genuine, like, really good little ones yeah. in that list. Even <laughs> even on the surface, you would say, "Oh, that's a this is a hack thing." But I think he went so far with it, and there were some funny, real, and and, and also I think Punk and Creo's reactions. Yeah, the reactions. Pretty good. Punk in particular was was really was really on for his reactions. Even Jack Evans, you know, was was pretty funny during it at certain points. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing that was funny about Carino's list was that they were so excessive. You know, they just went yeah. on for so long, and I think Cabana definitely got the spirit of that down. I actually don't think it would. They were quite as long as some of Carino's lists, but um, still very long, as you could just tell. And and, and probably the most well remembered part of the entire show. One thing that I think was interesting. Did you notice that when Regal did the intro for Carino, uh, normally whoever Carino's a personal ring announcer, they'll say you know, and the fucking god of wrestling. For some reason on this show, he said the effing god, like he didn't say the fuck. So I wonder if someone told him don't swear or. He just switched it up because he he kind of self edited himself. I, I was just like, huh? That's the first time I've ever seen someone say effing god, not fucking god. Was Bobby Heenan there or something? <laughs> um, also funny before the match was uh, CM Punk grabbed uh, Jack Evans' uh, hat that he was wearing sideways, and he wears it sideways to mock him. And then on commentary, it's funny. Like Gabe, bless his heart, is like trying to sell that Punk is just consumed with rage on this night with Jimmy Rave. And this match, you know, Punk's being kind of lighthearted and enjoying joking around and stuff. So Punk, Gabe on commentary has to say something like, you know, Punk's uh, almost manic. He, you know, he, you know, he was angry before, and now he's joking around. He's kind of selling. <laughs> It, like like punk is kind of crazy with rage that's why he's laughing <laughs> like, hey you know he tried he tried yeah i mean no that, that's the kind of thing i really liked about gabe was like he would try and go the extra mile at some points to like make sure things tied together where most other bookers or announcers would just go eh, whatever it doesn't make sense i'm just going to ignore it he was like trying his best to try and like justify it like this is why punk is laughing when the last match he was like telling a guy he was going to murder them for real um so, yeah, the story of this match is um, it isn't really the match itself. It's uh, a few minutes into this match, 
Um, it's Roderick Strong and Colt Cabana are wrestling. Uh, Colt's against the ropes. Roderick's running at him to do a spot. Also, you just hear this loud snap. Uh, the top rope sna- uh, sags a bit, and you can see Roderick Strong, he just stops in the middle of running towards Colt, and he's kind of like a deer in the headlights, like, what the fuck happened? And Colt, to his credit, like, sees what that Roderick's kind of just stopped, and he just immediately, like, hits him or slaps him or chops him or something to, like, be like, no, we got to keep wrestling. And so what happened was, in the middle of this match, I'll go to the PW Insider quote from this. Mike Johnson wrote, The ring actually broke several minutes into the bout as metal bracketing that held the supports in place where they were welded together. No, so... No, let me just make sure. I think the phrasing on that. The ring actually broke several minutes into the bout as metal bracketing that held the supports in place split where they were welded together. So it was a manufacturing defect. There were some slight changes to the match because of the busted ring, which was obvious proud when the ring post on one side popped out of place and was sliding inward. Other than cutting a few minutes off the match, everything that had been planned was done. So... Yeah, I would say this match was not a bad match. It wasn't particularly great, but it was not bad. But I thought the thing that was kind of surprising was they wrestled, like, I'm surprised to even read that Mike Johnson say that, like, they cut a few minutes off this match because they wrestled for quite a while after the ring breaks. And you can even, some guys do top rope moves. They run the ropes at some point, so you can tell guys are being kind of gingerly. And I think the thing that kind of hurts this match is that the commentary at, at at the point that this the ring breaks, even though the wrestlers I felt like did a pretty good job of just working around it, the commentary becomes obsessed with it, particularly Gabe. Like he's talking about how, oh, how dangerous it is and someone in the back should stop the match and take this out of their hands. It almost made me wonder if Gabe just like felt guilty about yeah. letting these guys wrestle in this ring because he was like saying stuff like, oh, well, if you knew this, you'd probably stop the match being that you're the I one mean, that could. At one point, he says something like someone in, like, in the higher up should just like stop the match and take this out of their hands. And I was like, it's crazy to hear that when you know Gabe would be that person. And in yeah. fact, if you watch this match, as soon as the ring breaks, within pretty much immediately for the rest of the match, Gabe and members of the ring crew, in fact, I think it might be Dun and Marcos with hoodies because there's a Dun, there's a Dun and Marcos chant, are running constantly like from behind the scenes back to the ring, behind the scenes, like trying to figure out like what the hell's happened to the ring. Um, and for me, it was really hard to focus on the match because the commentary at, after, at, from that point on, it became not about the match. It became just about, you know, how dangerous this is. And I, I, I kind of felt like it was Gabe trying to put, put the match over by saying, look how dangerous it is. Look how brave these guys are for wrestling from this. I feel like it kind of has a different feeling nowadays where like, I feel like in 2021, no commentator would try and put over like rest, that the wrestlers were in mortal danger because the ring broke. Like that would open you up to liability, especially considering that in not too long ago in Evolve, another gay book promotion, uh, a wrestler famously, Peter Casa, you know, the ring, the rope broke as he was doing a flying move and that basically ended his career. Like he hurt himself. He hurt some vertebrae in his neck from, uh, doing a move and just decided to call it quits there. So I feel like that's, this is another one of those things where yes, Gabe could do commentary for this match and, and hype up how dangerous it was because it's post-produced. So he knows no one got hurt from it, but still, I still feel like today, no announcer would be like really sell how dangerous this broken ring that we let guys wrestle in is, but it happened here. Um, 
Again, I thought the match, hard for me to focus. I thought it was solid, slightly above average. I I thought everyone, there was, they did a decent amount of time beating up Jack Evans and Jack Evans always takes a good beating. I felt it was kind of bad in the sense that, um, we had just seen a couple shows earlier, one of the greatest Jack Evans gets beat up matches of all time. So I felt bad watching this because the whole time I was like, this is good, but it's not as good as that. But that's an unfair comparison. Um, I felt like Jack Evans also, he threw a bit too many strikes in this match, which again is his one weakness. His strikes hardly ever look good. And I always feel like he's at his best when he finds ways to ignore that. Um, I thought you saw on some sequences, like an early sequence grappling with uh, Roderick Strong, you could really start to see Colt's British influence. He picked up from his tour over there coming out more and more in a match like this. And I guess my one last thing I'll say is, uh, I complain on other matches with Jack Evans and Roderick Strong where their big flaw is they would do the Ode to the Bulldogs, which is the coolest move they have, always gets the biggest reaction in any one of their matches, and they, they would just do it like in the middle of the match and not finish. Well, you know, I got to give credit where credit is due. They actually do it for the finish. I think this is one of the first times they do it for the finish, which is the right move because it's always like a huge crowd pleaser, and I don't think you can top it. So. Overall, I thought decent match, you know, not great, especially considering the talent, but it's kind of hard to fault them when the ring breaks, when the ring breaks minutes and the commentary then becomes lightning focused on it. Yeah, you know, I couldn't, the thing is like, because you mentioned like how it kind of like just the commentary is too focused on it and the wrestlers really aren't. It kind of makes me say, like, was it as dangerous as Gabe was saying? Because if it was, you know, it made a lot of the stuff they were doing just feel stupid. You know, like the fact that they were like still like hitting the ropes. You know, you'd think if the ring was broken and the ropes were broken, they would try to like not do as much on the ropes. But they were like so, you know, like and they were like doing springboards and and all the usual and usual stuff. And it's like, so was that was that really really incredibly dangerous to them, or was Gabe overselling what was going on with the ring? You know, I don't know. What do you think? Well, we'll get to this in a, in a couple of minutes, but there is one thing where they had Rock and Rebel do a, a match like that was did not air afterwards to test out the ring afterwards. And even after they fixed it, apparently Rebel told the wrestlers, try to avoid the corner where the ring broke. So, but again, for the rest of the night, like, I don't really notice, like, the ring being a hindrance of the guys working that much differently. But apparently he did say after working that match, like, you should try and stay out of that corner, which I think guys generally did. But, right. But the but rest of but the really rest of the it. ring was the rest of the ring was you know not not out of bounds at all. Yeah. Um but yeah, so a lot of springboard stuff like one notable spot was Carino hitting five power bombs on Jack Evans in a row. Um but you know and then um but you know there's not not too much to say about it. Um they put in a, a very admirable effort. I thought that that Evans getting the uh the pin showed that Gabe was impressed with how well he did. In the Midwest. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm reading too no. much into that. And no, especially because Gabe, the commentary tries to tell us, like, this is the biggest win of his career. Like, like they really try and focus on the fact Jack Evans just pinned CM Punk. Right. So that's why I think, like, Gabe, you know, Evans really impressed Gabe in the same way he impressed us. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I so, like, I don't know, like, I guess I can't really fault the guys much for the match because – it was distracting to think about the ring, and it was tainted by that. Um, but still, the match was just just okay. You know, it was a solid match. But you know, these these you know these guys could have a really good match, and they didn't. Yeah. And again, this kind of goes into the the thing with this tournament, which is you know, like I said at the start, they put all Gabe put all his eggs in this basket, so that 
problem is when you have a six band match like this that doesn't hit, like that's a lot of really good talent that kind of had one chance and didn't really do something great with it, you know, as opposed to if you had split these guys up into three singles matches, you'd be, you'd almost certainly get at least one really good match out of that. I would have to say, but you know, that's the thing with six man tags is it's a lot of talent, but you're risking things in a weird way. But I'm after the match. Like we said, Gabe Celsus has Jack Evans' biggest win. Generation Next goes to the back as Creel and Punk get into an argument. Uh, Colt tries to get between them, but they get into a shouting match as well, Colt and Carino. Uh, Creel tells Colt to stop walking behind Punk, which I thought was kind of like an interesting, I, I guess that was a reference to the classic, uh, Dusty Rhodes promo he did on Arn Anderson to Dustin, you know, in, in the mid nineties where he's like, you know, Arn Anderson's a walk behind her, you know, and the view never changes, that legendary promo. So Punk then at this point screams, fuck you to Crino. Crino replies by calling Punk Triple H, which gets a Triple H chant. And I love at this point in wrestling, calling someone Triple H was like the key to getting like easy, cheap heat from fans at any indie show. Um, Punk says, go back to zero one, you errand boy. Uh, Colt tells Carino and Punk to shake hands. Colt shakes Carino's hand. The crowd chants for Punk and Carino to shake. Punk sticks out his hand, and Creole teases that he's going to shake it, but bails to the outside instead. Colt holds a pissed-off CM Punk back and says, who needs that son of a bitch? So, continuing to try and sell this this angle they've been teasing for a while now, which is the the kind of simmering dislike between Punk and Creole, even though they're supposed to kind of be friends, which we'll see as we, we could – we'll talk about on the next show. It does not go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, this again, this is a, just another thing. Like, it just doesn't go anywhere. And and the one commentary, Punk was even like later when he was asked about it, like, oh uh, yeah, you know, like it was it was nothing. Like, you know, we're fine. And it's just like, um, I guess maybe by the time he recorded the commentary, they knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. Do you think that was the case? Yeah, because for those who don't know, the story of the next show, Back to Basics, which we'll be covering next, is um, is the main event was supposed to be Samoa Joe and Jay Lethal versus Steve Carino and CM Punk for the number one contendership to the tag titles. And I guess Carino no-shows, and uh, it was it ended up leading to one of those what seems like a million like moments where Gabe and, and Carino were on the outs for a little while. I mean, Carino would eventually come back. So that basically him not showing up for whatever reason, I haven't figured, learned it yet, basically, I think basically led to the end of this angle that they were clearly building for a bunch of shows. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's like on its own, you know, that's not that crazy, but there's just the fact that there's so many of examples of that in this period, I just yeah. find very interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think that they lost much from them not doing that because what Punk ended up doing in ROH in 2005 was some of the best stuff ever so oh yeah so fine you know ended up all's well that ends well i guess is what is what i'm trying to say um actually one interesting thing about that i'll just say quickly is uh jimmy rave mentioned this when i was listening to i think his interview on the honorable mention podcast where he was like one thing he really liked about gabe this might have been his RF shoot interview either. I don't know. I've listened to so much stuff. It get all kids mixed together. But Jimmy Rave said one thing he really learned from Gabe that he liked was Gabe would sometimes book a guy in two different feuds at the same time. So they always had something to do, even if one feud wasn't going on a particular show. And, you know, even if this feud with Creo had gone off, like Punk was already in a feud with Jimmy Rave. Like he had two feuds basically. Right. Even if, so that would have been interesting to see, like, would we have gone as much Rave punk stuff as we got or would have been like more alternating like you know a creole match on one show rave match on another like uh, it's yeah that's that's an interesting thing to think about yeah 
Anyway, you were going to say something else. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no, no. No, that was it. Okay, so uh, PW Insider Mike Johnson wrote about the inter- – they took an impromptu intermission at this point. Uh, Mike Johnson writes, the promotion took an unscheduled intermission at this point with the ring crew fixing the ring in 29 minutes. I love that Mike had the exact thing. Not half an hour, 29 minutes. Uh, given the damage of the ring, that was nothing short of a miracle. They actually used a car jack to keep the bracketing in place and pulled the ring post upright with several braces. In the event of further problems with the ring, Ring of Honor actually dispatched several of their students to go back to the Ring of Honor school and break down the training ring so it could be transported to the venue in case they needed to replace the broken ring with a new one. Thankfully, that never needed to be the case. And then PW Insider also wrote, although he is out of the promotion storylines for the next 90 days, H.C. Loke was backstage handling his normal agent duties and helped get the ring back up to snuff after it broke. So I love, you know, they're selling this angle, but, you know, fixing the rings, fixing the ring. H.C. Loke had to come out and have to. And, you know, depending if that thing was right about him maybe being the weapon of mass destruction number three, it was an un- maybe a surprisingly busy night for Loke, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. But hey, they rose to the occasion. Yeah. Um, we go backstage where Gary Michael Capetta in a green sweater, almost matching the weird green, green tent the wall had with the shooting of this, uh, the white balance I think was off for this significantly. No, um, you don't say. <laughs> he is joined by Jay Lethal. Gary informs us that the ring in fact is broken and it's going to take some time to fix it. Lethal has a black eye and he says he was kicked by someone who attacked him, but he didn't see who. Lethal says he is not going to back out of his match tonight, though. Tonight is his night. He doesn't quite say it yeah. quite with the gusto of tonight is the night I've been waiting for, but it's still a little bit corny. <laughs> yeah, I wrote the same thing. Not 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 as good. <laughs> I will swear backstage, we go to Sugar Sean Price, whose own sweater looks to be matching the tint of the green wall. Again, the white balance completely off. Um, he's joined by Spanky and James Gibson. Price asks, how do they feel about losing in front of this big crowd in Philly? Which seems like kind of an uh, insulting question. I, Gibson doesn't like that question. He's not happy. He says he's here to be a champion. He's here for, quote, Austin Arias is what he, how he pronounces his name. BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff. Gives him points out that in singles, he's undefeated in Ring of Honor, which is not that big of a brag, James, considering that you've only wrestled, what, like two or three singles matches so far? But anyway, he says if they're going to work as a tag team, he and Spanky, Spanky has to be able to defend – he has to be able to depend on Spanky. Gibson says Spanky dropped the ball tonight. Spanky defends himself by saying that while he likes to have fun, he takes it serious in the ring. He gives it 110% and he works out and trains when he isn't wrestling. Spanky says Gibson, he knows Gibson beat him when they wrestled each other, but if they wrestled 10 times, Gibson wouldn't beat him 10 times. Spanky says he's not saying that he's better than Gibson, but he tells Gibson, don't think you're better than me either. Gibson says, whoa, calm down. Um, You're taking it all wrong, Spanky. I'm not trying to challenge you to a match. I just want you to take things a little more seriously. Gibson leaves. Price asks Spanky what the Trent Acid thing was about. Spanky calls Acid a disrespectful little prick as well as a kid, and he says he doesn't even want to talk about him. Matt, I looked it up. Spanky was born in 1979. Trent Acid was born in 1980. So, again, one of those fun things. I always love when a wrestler that is barely older than somebody else calls somebody a kid. I also don't think that Spanky was had you know even much more experience than Trent Acid. Like in terms no, of no, I don't think so. I mean, in terms of like you know years, maybe like Spanky had more matches because of like WWE and stuff. But, um, but this the whole Gibson Spanky dynamic. You know, I don't think it works for me. Um, I think they both seem annoying. <laughs> like, you know, like Spanky is like is, is Spanky was fun because he was wacky and he's not wacky at all in these. 
and like and they're very serious and Jamie's just like complaining he's like get serious man this is important to me and it's like I don't know it makes doesn't make these guys seem likable to me but clearly the crowds didn't agree so I shouldn't complain too much they're both taking things too seriously in different ways and both in ways that like like you said do not make them look great like Jamie Gibson's being kind of an asshole to Spanky and Spanky's kind of acting like he's like a gruff 45 year old when he's talking about kids. And even that match against J- uh, Jimmy Jacobs with the angle there before the match, you know, Spanky seemed like a little too mad that Jimmy Jacobs was doing a similar finisher. Like, yeah, but yeah, it doesn't quite work for me either. So this was at the point. It does not make the DVD where we had uh, the Rock and Rebel and Greg Matthews defeat Blue Blood and Drew Moore in 427. This was your usual match at this point where Ring of Honor did not have a Pennsylvania promoter's license. Rock I wonder. I wonder if Drew Moore is like a wrestling pun. Like I drew more than that guy. <laughs> he should have his partner drew less. Um, but but um. Yeah, this was <laughs> then, 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 their ma- then their manager drew the same. <laughs> <laughs> they had, they had um, Rock and Rebel had the promoter's license, so any show in Philadelphia around this time, Ring of Honor would give Rock and Rebel a dark match that they did not air because I guess that was part of Rebel's demands for letting them use the promoter's license. Mike Johnson wrote, The Rock and Rebel and Greg Matthews beat Blue Blood and Drew Moore in a match that was originally scheduled for the turn- after the tournament semifinals, but was sent out, after- out first after intermission, partially to test out the ring. After working the belt, Rebel advised that the workers try to stay out of the bad corner as much as possible. So it, it is kind of fun, like, Rebel, you go out there. See if see if this ring's going to hold up. You know, if you if you die, it won't be as big a loss. <laughs> I mean, granted, if I was promoted, that'd be the same thing I would do. But it is kind of funny to think like, yeah, we're moving this match up just in case. You know, you guys go out first. It is um, it is it is actually extremely extremely strange. <laughs> uh, next up, a trios tournament's the other semifinal match. The Rottweilers of Homicide, Ricky Reyes, and Rocky Romero defeated Brian Danielson, Samoa Joe, and Vordell Walker in 9 minutes, 54 seconds, when Reyes pinned Walker after they hit uh, their demolition decapitation-style de- knee drop. I saw some recap refer to, the, refer to this as the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I don't know if it was the official name of the move or not, but Ring of Honor wasn't calling it that, but it'd be interesting if that was it. Um... Matt, this is the other semifinal. Again, a lot of talent in this match. Uh, how do you think it actually came on execution? Didn't quite even go ten minutes. Yeah, it was. Um, that was surprising. I, um, I don't know. Like, did, did do you think that they seem more tentative because of the ring? Obviously, everything that you wrote says no. But I don't know. I kept thinking during the match that they were kind of, um, which you know is fine. Like, if it, if that's true, I just I'm not sure if it was. Like, maybe maybe I was seeing things. You know. I'm um, not sure, but do you? I was going to ask you. Do you think it's the? Fa- do you think this match would have been longer than 9:54 if the ring hadn't broke? Because on one hand, one of the two teams did have to wrestle a longer match, not that far in the future. But at the same time, for these six guys to only get ten minutes is seems a little weird. I mean, I don't know. Well, they said that this they had an impromptu intermission, leading me to believe that the intermission was supposed to be after this match. Yeah. Which would indicate to me that maybe they would have done a, like a bigger, more dramatic match, um, you know, that ends the half. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But, you know, did, who knows? Um, you know, but, um, you know, they do a lot of, uh, you know, uh, stalling and then they get more into it. And for a while, they're not really taking a lot of bumps. It feels like they take some, some time to get comfortable um, taking bumps in the ring. Uh, eventually... Um, after um, 
uh, Danielson uh, does some no-selling of homicide strikes and hits a bunch of European uppercuts. Then they start bumping for each other's strikes, and Romero comes off the top rope with a drop kick, and Danielson hits a drop kick on homicide and a German suplex on Reyes, and then they start wrestling a little bit more, um, more normally. And Joe hits the big power slam on homicide. Um, the um, Walker puts Reyes in like a, a power slam position and spins him into a urinagi, which I thought was a pretty cool move, honestly. Like I, you know, I I, I didn't mind Walker here. Like I thought that was. You know, that was, he had a couple of interesting moves. Um, Danielson and Homicide, of course, fight on the floor, um, whipping into the guardrails. Smokes attacks him from behind to save Homicide. Um, and in the midst of all of this, Joe does his tope onto Homicide at the last second. Um, Smokes gets in the way to take the bump, too. Um, and then Reyes and Romero do their little knee drop thing. Um, and Danielson and Homicide continue to fight in the crowd and out into the lobby because why wouldn't they? Um, yeah, so not bad. I thought that they seemed more tentative, so it didn't seem like a very eventful match. I would say this match, like if I saw this match on paper at this time, I would have thought it would have been more than what it was, and it wasn't. So, so yeah, I, you know, I I don't even know if I'd give this match, you know, that three stars. You know, maybe like two and a half, two and three quarters. I might have liked it slightly more than you, but I wouldn't be far different. Um, I don't know, you know, again, we don't know for sure why they wrestled the match the way they do, but all we can judge it on is what we, what we saw. And watching this match, it almost came off almost like a longer version of the Embassy Second City Saints match where it was almost more about furthering a feud than having a great match because I would say I, I kind of know I think that the first seven or eight minutes of this 10 minute match it's Brian Daniels is is Brian Danielson in for his team it's not till the final couple minutes where you get to see Vordell Walker and Joe and a lot of that is uh Danielson getting worked three on one and the story and it was it, it it was a good story for furthering the feud where the, the story of this match is every time Danielson makes a comeback Instead of going to tag out, he like attacks Homicide on the apron, and so event immediately the Rottweilers jump on him and they get the control again. So the idea is, you know, Danielson's so blinded by his rage from Homicide that he keeps not making the smart move until eventually he finally does, and then actually works well in the finish too, where the finish of the match is Danielson's brawling with Homicide into the crowd, and Joe even gets distracted by uh, Julius Smokes, and that leaves poor Vordell Walker alone in the ring, two on one with the with the Havana Pitbulls, and they take him out. So in that sense, from like a booking standpoint, I even like the idea like um, Joe's interactions with Joe with a uh, Homicide in this match are not many, but Joe does wrestle with a bit of extra intensity against Homicide, which I always love when a feud ends and then the two guys encounter each other again and they kind of remind you that like we're not feuding right now, but we still really don't like each other. Like Joe kind of wrestles like he still hates Homicide, which he should. That that plays into the the character at this point. But yeah, so even though all of that makes sense for the feud, though, I think the thing is. What what that what that means is the match was like seven or eight out of the ten minutes of this match was Brian Danielson getting beaten down by the pit bulls on homicide. And it wasn't terrible. It just wasn't that great either. And I would actually say I like the pit bulls a little more than I often do, but um uh, Rocky Romero's charisma continues to come out more and more every show. I thought Fordell Walker, I thought, you know, in the very little limited amount he had I thought he looked good. I thought he had more fire in this match than his other couple of matches we've seen him in. It's kind of a shame that he ends up losing this match and barely getting any ring time because, you know, he even felt like in that interview that he was clicking better in this match. Um, 
uh, the one interesting moment on a com- well, not interesting. Uh, CM Punk on commentary at this point says, and I'll quote: "Homicide is like an evil thug Santa Claus with his two little elves running around ringside." Oh God! I don't know what an evil thug Santa Claus is. I don't know what I don't know why that popped into his head. At this point, it wasn't the holidays anymore. Um, I think he was clearly but- just trying to call the pit bulls short. Yeah. Um, I also thought it was funny. People kept tugging on Danielson's beard during this match. And earlier in, in the in Danielson's entrance for the first match, he was like twirling his mustache. So if you are a fan of people tugging on Brian Danielson's facial hair, if that's a fetish, Trios Tournament 2005 is the best Ring of Honor show to watch. Um, yeah, this is this is the like, the best show for that particular fetish. Yes, I'll reiterate exactly. So, yeah, slightly disappointing match. Well, not slightly, fairly disappointing match. Not bad, but not particularly good. And again, we were getting to a point in the card, I felt like, where even though the first round match with uh, Joe's team was really good, we were kind of getting to the point where it's like, we need another great match on, or uh, even a great match on the show. Or just just like a genuinely good one. Yeah, and time was running out, yes. Because that brings us to a... Anyway, immediately after the match... Uh, Danielson and Homicide continue to brawl. Joe comforts Vernell Walker. And then we go to the next match, the six-man mayhem match. Asriel defeated B-Boy, Deranged, Dixie, Izzy, and Kevin Steen in 11 minutes, 8 seconds when he pinned B-Boy after he hit a top rope double stomp. So this was Kevin Steen's main card Ring of Honor debut. And Matt, I did a bunch of research for this and – Kevin Steen's going to be the bane of my existence for this podcast because Kevin Steen has done more goddamn shoot interviews than pretty much any wrestler <laughs> of this era. And, and, you, and, you, and you just can't help yourself but to watch them all. I know, I no. know. I didn't, get, I didn't get through them all, but I tried to cram yesterday. He did one for Smart Mark Video. He did one for RF Video. He did one for High Spots. Those three alone are nearly 11 hours, I think, uh, around. Between those one, just the Smart Mark Video one is nearly a five-hour shoot interview. <laughs> um, he, he did a whole series of shows where it was like the Kevin Steen talk show for High Spots, including one with Gabe. I never got to that. But... You know, and, you know, he's done lots of podcast interviews, all sorts of stuff. But I do have some background on this right now. So there are more stories to tell that I'm saving for other shows. Well, basically just one other story. There's a thing he got into with CM Punk that he talks about on a future show. But so the whole story, we kind of mentioned it on a recent show about Steen and Generico getting into Ring of Honor. Steen talked about um, on his shoot interviews that – what happened was he and Generico actually bought tickets to Weekend of Thunder Night One, and after the show, or at some point, he goes up to Punk and he's like, uh, "We, I have a tape. Me and Generico have a tape. Who do we give this to? Because we want to work for Ring of Honor." And Punk says, "Oh, it's Gabe. Give it to him." And the, Steen says at that point he didn't even know who Gabe was, but they kind of gave the tape. They don't hear from him for two months. Two months later, Gabe calls him. Is like, "I watched your tape." I want to book you, Steen, for, uh, to be the weapon of mass destruction number two at final battle. And then in February, I'll start booking you guys as yourselves. Steen gets hurt and he's freaking out. He says, because he thinks he's just ruined a huge opportunity. He goes, I didn't realize it wasn't, this first run wasn't a good opportunity. Generico takes a spot as the weapon of mass destruction. Both guys do work, do or die in February where Steen actually wrestles B-Boy and, um, Generico, I think does some kind of four way. And then Matt, I never knew this before I did this research, or if I did, I forgot about it. Gabe said his plan – told Steen, he says, this isn't written in stone, but he says, my plans for your booking on the trios turn is I'm going to have you either team with Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe or with James Gibson and Spanky. 
And then later he told him, no, I've changed that. You're in a six-man mayhem. But the original plans, according to Steen, was he was going to be in that six-man tag, which instead instead of instead of Ordell Walker or or Nigel McGinnis, he he was going to be one or the other. He was going to be in one of those spots on one of the teams. And for whatever reason, Gabe changed his mind and put him in this. Um, Steen also said that um, he asked Gabe before this, like. you know, do you want me to wrestle as a face or do you want me to wrestle as a heel? And Gabe says it doesn't matter, just wrestle. And and the interesting thing Steena said in multiple shoots is like he says, like, I didn't know at that moment, but what I learned is that doesn't work for me, just wrestle. Like I have to re- wrestle as a face or a heel because he says, even though my nickname is Mr. Wrestling, like I don't think people come just to see me wrestle. Like the character's an important part for me. And I, I he you know, he says, you know, and we'll get into this on other episodes that he didn't think he necessarily got the greatest opportunity in this first run. He and Jericho didn't, but also that, um, he, uh, he, he thinks that not having like a character direction hurt him on these things, but I, th- I think he's right, <laughs> but um, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, this match was, a. Uh, what'd you think about the match, man? I mean, it's, there's not much to this match really. I mean, it, it's, it's your standard scramble. I would say, but what'd you think? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I tend to enjoy these matches, you know, when they're not, particularly bad and i thought this wasn't and i thought it was pretty fun um i thought ever i thought people looked pretty good i actually thought b-boy looked um looked quite good and i'm, I'm actually surprised that b-boy wasn't booked more by roh i know he, he he does come back for other shows but he's not that much i thought steam looked pretty good i really you know i i, I had a good time watching it i definitely don't think that these guys were tentative because of the ring i will say that um there was one um, funny part on commentary where Punk says Spanky and Gibson were really looking forward to the match, and Gabe's like, "No, they weren't. Don't I don't believe you." And I, it must be an inside joke. Maybe like Spanky and Gibson like complained about these kinds of matches. That's the only thing I could think of. Did did, did, does that, did it read that way to you also? Yeah, and in fact, um, did you notice that also um, Punk at one point? Like, he kind of is focusing on Steen. Like, he says, you know, Steen's ugly. He calls one of his moves the Mr. Peepers driver. I believe that was the, the stuff pile driver. And then later, when Steen does another move, he, he says that's really unsafe. Like, and um, he kind of focuses on that. Let me just see if I can find the quote. He calls it the unsafe overhead suplex. And, in fact, in one of the shoot interviews uh, that I saw from Kevin Steen, he – uh. He, he has. We'll get into it on another episode. But he has a confrontation with CM Punk, and he's like, "I don't have feet with CM Punk," and people thought he did. He did, and he actually references the commentary in this match because he says people thought Punk hated me because Punk was saying like, "Aren't you mad? Punk is commenting your matches and he's calling you unsafe." And Cena says that didn't bug me. He says if anything, that helps me. That makes me look more dangerous. But I did kind of feel like watching this match. That like unsafe. You don't call a wrestler's work unsafe because technically, in the world of wrestling, aren't a lot of your moves supposed to be unsafe? Like, I mean, all, all all of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to me, that kind of felt like it was kind of crossing a line, you know. And I mean, you know, there are people that have said that Punk did not like certain people, you know, and you know, Punk could be grumpy or Punk could go after somebody. And I don't know. It just I don't know if you got that impression, but it did kind of feel like me that Punk was kind of shitting on steen a little bit in this match yeah no i agree with that um uh yeah and as as far as like other stuff in the match like one spot that i enjoyed was um izzy went up to the top 
no, excuse me, Azriel went up to the top for a dive, but Izzy stopped him and hit a moonsault drop kick on Azriel. So Azriel got knocked down and he fell on to Deranged and Dixie. While um while Izzy, you know, completed his moonsault in the other direction onto B Boy and Steen. And that's not a spot I've ever seen before, and I thought that was really cool. And I actually thought that Izzy looked very good and I think he always looks good in these kinds of matches. I think like he's he's one of like the unsung heroes of like these six man mayhem or um or scramble style matches cuz you don't really just you just don't hear much about Izzy. Um but uh but yeah, um Steen gets a chance to do a standing flipping leg drop. Um to Derange teases going for a neck breaker but instead he hits a low blow and gloats about it. You know, I, I miss Derange when he wasn't around as much. He's yeah. he's a lot of fun. At one point early in the match, Izzy and Derange, like when they first ha- – like everybody drops off the apron, so Izzy and Derange have to fight each other. But instead, they just like f- pretend to like like to box each other. Like they, they, they just punch the air and the other guy sells it, which, you know, good character work. You know, Steen didn't have a character, but Izzy and Derange – and especially Deranged, definitely did. Actually, let's be honest, Deranged was the only guy in the whole match that had a character. Um, <laughs> but he had one. Um, and yes, not only does Steen um, uh, get called a Mr. Peeper's driver, it's called a swinging Mr. Peeper's driver. <laughs> Ooh, the variation. Yeah. At one point, um, Azriel hits a big clothesline on Deranged and Dixie breaks up the pin, so they're pissed off at each other. Um, B-Boy hits a double backdrop like suplex on Izzy and Derange at the same time, and the crowd goes nuts for B-Boy. Um, then Azrael hits his like top rope blockbuster slash diamond dust thing on B-Boy. Everyone's down. Um, Dixie clotheslines Izzy through the ropes. Derange goes for a Rana on Steen, but Steen catches him in in a cradle over the head to, uh, to cradle over the head toss. And that's the one that Punk calls the unsafe overhead suplex. And he asks Gabe for a dangerous chant, or a call, you know, a dangerous whatever, the dangerous. And, um, you know, good good that I'm not the only one that notices that Gabe does that at extremely random times. Um, (laughs) It's very unpredictable when he's going to say dangerous. Um, um, And um, at one point, um, B-Boy hits an inverted DDT. On the apron on um, on Steen, and the crowd's really rooting for B Boy. Azriel hits B Boy with a double stomp off the top to the head to get the win. Um, and Gabe says, "Maybe now Azriel and Dixie will start using music because I guess they broke their losing streak." But I don't. Had they ever established that that was like a thing that they weren't using they, music until they won? They did. It was during the last days of a uh, special K, and then um, they won. Like Izzy won. And then Izzy started using music again, I think. And then they they didn't like Azrael and Dixie didn't. So it just got weird. It, it's really dumb. Yeah. Um, well, I guess they're going to start using music now. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know. I'm I'm a sucker for these kinds of matches, and I didn't think this one was much lower than the typical. So I enjoyed it, and I and I liked seeing Steen, and I thought B Boy and Izzy both looked very good. I thought this was a decent scramble style match. Like I, I enjoyed it. I I didn't think it was like better than other than the average scramble but it wasn't worse either like it was a, a decent one of these that and um 
I agree. I think B-Boy was the star of the match, which is kind of weird because even though B-Boy did do some cool moves like like the one you mentioned, he did a big basement drop kick, the double suplex, you know, a, a uh, pile driver variation, like a cross-armed pile driver. But at the same time, like these matches are usually all about the high flying and B-Boy's offense is like the most grounded. But he just wrestled with kind of this, this spring in his step and this urgency and the crowd's like chanting his name before the end of the match. Like he really did a good job and like you, I'm kind I don't know if it was just travel or whatever, but I'm kind of surprised he didn't get more bookings from this because he did kind of was the star of this match. I think Steen did basically all you can do in a match like this when you're a brand new guy, which is just hit the five coolest moves you know how to do. And Steen basically did that with the flipping leg drop and the package. Like he does the package pile driver, which is his finisher, just in the middle of the match because it's just like, you know – you, you, you don't got that much time in this match and all you can do is spots in this kind of match so here we go so i don't blame him for that and yeah izzy like you said always looks good in these kinds of matches and um decent enough entertaining kind of match and i guess in a way this is kind of a good palate cleanser between rounds of a, of a tournament so um yeah, the next match is the semi-main event. It is the Ring of Honor pure title match. Jay Lethal defeats John Walters in 11 minutes, 29 seconds. He becomes the fourth ever pure champion. Um, before the match, the ref informs us that the pure ti- of the pure title rules. And it also says that Nana and Jimmy Rave are banned from ringside. Nana then says he talked to his lawyer and he says that his lawyer told him that he and Jimmy can stay at ringside. At this point, CM Punk comes out hobbling on one leg. He chases Nana to the back. He then returns and chases Rave to the, into the crowd. So I like that he like chased them one at a time. He throws a chair at him. And as he throws a chair at him, Gabe says, and I quote, Punk risking the safety of the fans. <laughs> which again is another line I don't think you would say nowadays. Yeah, I, um, I, could, I didn't get that one at all. <laughs> um, in fact, I think because later on in the future, there will be a fan incident where like a fan gets hit with a chair and they have to send out like Jack Evans to like calm the fan down. So um, <laughs> uh, uh, fans for safety do get risked at Ring of Honor shows. Um, Indie wrestling, so little, everybody. <laughs> so a little background too. Before the match um, – Groups of fans of crowd, according to the Poor Wrestling Torch, and you can hear it, chanted Masterpiece at incumbent pure title holder John Walters, who lost to Chris Masterpiece Masters in a squash match the week before on Raw. Walters responded to one group, yelling something to the effect of, you try living on $250 per show. Other than that, the Raw squash match wasn't addressed. Walters walked to the ring to new African music, sporting slightly baggy purple pants and an African shirt. I, I, um, um, I, I don't think... That um, that uh, Walters, who just joined the embassy and has all these riches, should be saying that he's making two hundred and fifty dollars a show. Yeah. Although I guess I guess we should talk about for people that don't know the story behind this match is this was John Walters' last match in Ring of Honor. I mean, he did do one match a year or two later for Honor Reclaims Boston, and he did actually recently in the last couple of months do a couple matches in Ring of Honor again. But this was his uh last match is a regular in ring of honor and uh i'll go to the observer actually they talked about this dave writes the other match of note was jay lethal beating john walters to win the pure title which had to happen given that walters was squashed in a minute by chris masters a few days earlier on raw fans were all over walters chanting masterpiece at him and worse walters yelled at the crowd about how he got paid 250 dollars for less than two minutes of easy work well that made sure the heckling never stopped 
people were on him for submitting to a full Nelson on TV. So that's interesting. Dave's report interprets it as as um, Walter said he got paid two hundred fifty dollars to do the master lock thing, and the PW Torch thing says he was telling fans, "I'm only get to pay two hundred fifty bucks to work Ring of Honor." So I don't know which is the truth there. Um, I thought the interesting line there though was um, Dave saying that you know he had to lose the title because of uh, losing to the master lock challenge. I think we talked about this in the past. Dave takes like what happened to indie guys in WWE way too seriously. Like I think he feels like the fans would like never see them seriously. Where I feel like yes, the fans ribbed him for that, but the fans weren't going to like lose like respect for him as a, a serious performer. I don't think, I, I think fans, indie fans, especially ring of water fans could separate what they did in WWE from that. Cause I mean, we're not far away from Joe Kobashi where Dave would initially say like, Oh, you know, get, Joe can't wrestle Kobashi a single smash. Cause he'd have to lose. And that would ruin him in ring of honor. It's like, no, it, it wouldn't. This stuff isn't going to kill guys. But and in fact, if we go to the PW torch, or actually let me go to the PW insider. They wrote, Lethal worked with one of his eyes completely shut from taking a bad headbutt in a match with Homicide the night before for the New Jersey AWA promotion. The match was okay, but nothing compared to their Elizabeth, New Jersey match a few weeks back. Samoa Joe came out to – oh, well, that was the after-the-match thing. But anyway, this is a point I want to get to, Matt. Um, Mike Johnson wrote, for those wondering, this was the plan for several weeks now. So Walter's WWE appearance did not lead to his losing the title. So – Johnson saying, you know, this was planned, nothing to do with that. I mean, it seemed, um, I mean, it seemed like they were building to it, you know? Y- yeah. So anyway, for the match, it's, I got some other notes, but we'll get to the match itself right now. I thought this match was average. It was fine. I felt like this was a match where I noticed the crowd was kind of dead, apart from a couple times they got a little bit up for uh, Jay Lethal. I mean, it was kind of a middle-of-the-road match. They, they did pop for the finish. It felt like they were more excited to see Lethal win the title and to see a title change than they were for the match. The match was just – it was decent action back and forth, but there was a couple rope breaks, but they didn't really wrestle to the pure rules. It just felt like a regular match that just had a couple rope breaks worked into it. There wasn't much of a story. Lethal, even his win with the dragon suplex at the end, it felt like it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, after we watched their match recently in New Jersey in front of a Lethal's hometown crowd, I mentioned, like, do you uh, do you think he should have won the uh, – the pure title on that night. And obviously hindsight is, is 2020. It's easy for me to say this, having watched both matches, but looking back, it's definitely like, I think it would have been way better for him to win in New Jersey on that night that he had to wrestle two matches in a row because this, this match was not as good and had way less crowd reaction. I did like the one spot at the end where they played into their prior match where, um, near the end, uh, Walters hits, lethal with the three consecutive uh lung blowers which is what he used to beat lethal in their last match except in that match he had lethal had used up all his rope breaks so after he hit the lung blowers he drags lethal to the to the ropes and then holds onto the ropes while he pins him in this match lethal hasn't used up all his rope breaks so he can't do that and lethal kicks out so i thought that was a nice little acknowledgement of the past in a way but overall i thought this was a very average kind of forgettable match for a title change especially, but what do you think? Yeah, I um, I thought that the crowd heat, um, some of the execution, 
and the the match story. I don't know what it was missing, but it was missing something. Maybe it was missing Nana also uh, to get the crowd into it. Maybe he would have helped the crowd heat. I just yeah. I, I, sorry. I was just gonna say I read a live report from the Death Valley Driver guys, and they said that too. Like they said, why would you get rid of Nana in a match like this? You know. Um. No, I, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Um, I will say one thing that I noticed in Nana's commentary at the beginning of the match, when um, they were they 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 told him he had to leave, and he said that his he said that he was talked to like his his lawyer, and he said the lawyer's name, and it was something Goldstein, and I was like, if that's not a real person, that's anti-Semitic, <laughs> but um, but I'll let it slide. Um, but um, but other than that, yeah, um. Uh, yeah, I don't. Know. I don't know. There's just to me. There's just not much to say about the match. It's pretty methodical. It's pretty quiet. Um, like the there. Like I, I did like um, that. You know, like they they tried to do their like like lethal reverses the lung blower goes for a jackknife pin. Walters bridges out of it into a backslide. Then Walters went for the jackknife pin and lethal bridges out of it. Like little things like that. Like, but honestly, like stuff like that is the highlight of the match. There's just. There's just not that much. Lethal sort of got the crowd into it near the end because they would do a chop battle and Lethal would like scream and fire back up and the crowd would sort of get into that. Um, the the botch where um, Lethal does like the backflip and Walters runs at him and I'm not sure what was supposed to happen, but I guess maybe it was a leapfrog. Um, I guess that I like that was weird. Um, but yeah, I, I do think Lethal's moves just didn't have that much pop to them. And I'm assuming that was because of his eye. So I, um, so you know, got to maybe cut him some slack here. But after watching it, you do wish that um, you do wish that they had just done the title change in the first match because it was just a lot better and the crowd was more into it. Yeah, and um, so I tried to find out why did John Walters never come back to Ring of Honor, and I couldn't really get a complete answer. Again, maybe there's something I'm missing. I did find a couple things. Um, the pro wrestling torch wrote at the time, John Walters is gone from ring of honor for now. Um, Sapolsky tells the torch regarding Walters departure quote, at this point, I don't see him returning, which is unfortunate because he is a great talent and a credit to the locker room. Ring of honor played up Walters departure as a storyline stating that he quit the promotion. The ring of honor website states that his, that his manager, Prince Nana is quote, supportive of Walters decision and named him as secretary of pugilistic activity in Ghana, West Africa's government unquote, which that's a cute thing. Um, so I did find the most I could find on this map was I found an interview with John Walters that he did with Oliver Newman for WrestlingFigs.com. Um, Oliver Newman asked John Walters, thoughts on joining the embassy? And Walters replied, Prince Nana is probably the best manager on the Indies. So joining him in the embassy was really neat. I love that he said neat, by the way. I, I felt becoming a villain was necessary, but may have been a little too late. The short time I had with the embassy was lots of fun, and I would certainly do it again. In fact, I did an indie show about a year ago where the embassy rejoined. I would say you probably haven't seen the end of the embassy. And then Oliver Newman asks, thoughts on the pure title loss to Jay Lethal? Walters replies, Jay Lethal is a class act all the way, so I had no problem losing the title to him. I knew going in that that would be my last match for a while because I was taking a break from wrestling. The break lasted about five months, and it was a nice, well-needed break. I was building a house, and my body was aching, so I probably so I decided to step away for a bit. The match was with Lethal probably wasn't one of our better ones. So, first off, I think... Walters is pretty much right about everything there, about both the quality of the match and also that the embassy was probably, like, too late. Because I feel like 
he, I do think there, in, we saw little glimmers in his couple embassy matches of like, this could have worked for him because I do think there was some fun with him, like the ridiculous garb and, and just being, you know, the serious guy in a, a group that could be kind of goofy. And I agree with the idea of the too little, too late. It, it, I agree with that too. One thing I did think is kind of interesting, Matt, is, um, you know, going back to Gabe's quote, Gabe's quote was, you know, like, unfortunately, you know, Walter's left and, you know, like he, he, he like Gabe acted like it wasn't, he didn't want Walters to leave. And then Walter says, you know, I left because my body was hurt and I was building a house. And in fact, you look at cage match, Walters doesn't wrestle for months, but the thing is he does come back and wrestle basically regularly on the indies after five months and Ring of Honor does not start booking him again. So Yeah, he just has uh, one special guest appearance in 2006. And then he wasn't back until ROH until um, now. <laughs> so I don't know if it's just – in a way, there's he has a lot of similarities with Xavier because Xavier was another guy where he left with an injury. And then all, the newsletters were saying, you know, Xavier was backstage on this Ring of Honor show. He's going to come back soon. And then he keeps wrestling, but he just never comes back to Ring of Honor. And Walter seems like kind of the same thing where he – I guess my, my, and I have no inside information on this, but my guess would be in both cases, the guys in got injured and then they just, neither guy's career was going that great in Ring of Honor. And maybe by the time they were ready to come back, Gabe just felt like, you know what? We, we kind of don't need you right now. You know? Well, yeah, of course they, they moved on and they had guys like they, you know, by five months after this, they had a lot of like new stars that were over and, you know, doing, going to new directions. And yeah, they, you know, they didn't really have a spot for John Walters. Sorry to say. It's just interesting to me though because it's like he goes from being champion to out of the, I mean his 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 last title defense is his last match and then he's done which is yeah. you know usually a lot of times when we see guys leave Ring of Honor they either get like a big farewell or they kind of their careers kind of peter out like Matt Striker you know I hate to pick on Matt Striker but you know he he kind of doesn't just you know he gets booked less and then eventually he just kind of disappears but Walters is kind of like he's in the middle of his push and then it's just oh he's gone and never comes back, but well, comes back once or twice. But uh, his run was it, John Walters was not a bad wrestler. He needed personality, and the embassy could have given him that, which again goes back to the too little, too late thing. Um, he was not a bad wrestler, but I, I, I guess my thoughts on John Walters is he didn't have a character or charisma, and. Or a ton of charisma, and when you don't have those, or like a really unique look, and when you don't have any of those things, you're going to get by just on your wrestling. And he also didn't have promo ability. If you're going to get by just on your wrestling, you got to be like super great. And he was good, but not great enough to get by on not having like anything else on on his side. In my yeah. opinion, yeah, there were there were too- there were times. Like, cause I, you know, my memories of John Walters were one thing. And on this rewatch, it's like, I think there were times where he was better than I remembered. Um, I don't know if, I, I if you felt that matches, way. I think his early matches in, in 2003, he, he looked pretty good. And obviously the Xavier match was honestly, you know, that match at Final Battle 2003, that was, it's kind of weird to say because he ended up getting a title run and lasting another year, but that was the peak of you know, basically of his career here. But a couple of those pure title matches, the one against Doug Williams, the one against Nigel McGuinness, I thought those were matches that were better than any John Walters matches that I like remembered. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I thought he, like, I thought he had some, like he had, so he had potential, but yeah, it was just, he just, yeah, he wasn't considering there were so many great, fantastic all timers in ROH at this time. He just 
couldn't match that without having something more as a hook. And uh, he didn't, at least not at the time. You know, he did yeah, develop he did develop a character eventually and kind of got a lot of publicity for it a few years later, but never really showed it in ROH. Yeah, I I think if you're running like a lower tier indie with like a thinner roster at this point, you would have been really happy to have John Walters available to you, but like you said with Ring of Honor at this point, you just had so many guys that just being fairly good and 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 competent you know, you were just going to get lost in the shuffle. So, and I, I should add that that character that Walters played that got him attention in like 2010 ish probably wouldn't fly right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah probably, probably people most promotions probably want to stay away from from that association yeah. at this point. If you you saw if there was a video version of this podcast, you would see me tugging on my shirt collar. Right yeah, now. yeah. But, uh, <laughs> after the match, uh, Joe runs into the ring to congratulate Jay and raise his arm, and he's really happy for him. They hug. The crowd chants for Lethal as Lethal po- poses with the title. Joe and Jay shake hands, but Joe, you can tell he, we don't hear him talk, but you can tell with his hand gestures, he, he's making it clear to Jay, like, I'm happy for you, but I want a title shot down the road. Joe leaves the ring, and Jay gets a quick handshake with John Walters, and that's that. So a nice little happy moment of celebration you, Jay Lethal gets, which I always like. I like when after guys win titles, they actually let it linger for a little bit, and they don't just cut away. And they definitely give Jay some time here to kind of bask in the moment, which I liked. Bask in his glory. Uh, <laughs> and that brings us to the main event, the Trios Tournament Final. The Rottweilers, Homicide, Ricky Reyes, Rocky Romero, defeated Generation Next of Austin Aries, Jack Evans, and Roderick Strong in 21 minutes, 7 seconds, when Homicide pinned Austin Aries after he hit the cop killer. Matt, this was the one other uh, trios match in this whole tournament that I think really got a, lo- a, a good chunk of time. I guess you could say the uh, Saints-Rottweilers match did, but 15 minutes for six minutes, not bad, but of course that was the match the ring broke, but... Uh, a lot of talent in this match, a fair bit of time, main event, you know, pressure of being the main event. We already know both of us didn't feel this was as good as that uh, Samoa Joe match in the first round, but what did you think? Yeah, I wouldn't go much higher than like three and a quarter, but I thought it was a good match. Um, you know, there were things about it that maybe took it down a little bit, um, but I thought it was, you know, I thought it was it was good. Um, first of all, Smokes is wearing Patriots gear, which... I guess has something must must have had something to do with like something that happened in the previous football season with the Patriots and the Eagles maybe, but I thought it was ironic because Smokes his character got arrested for peeing on Fenway Park because he hates Boston so much, <laughs> and he's wearing Patriots gear. Um, I don't know if anyone thought of that, um, but um, but well, anyway. he hates the Red Sox, but he loves the Patriots. You know, just switching it up. Yeah, like 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 a lot of New Yorkers apparently. I don't know, um, <laughs> but um, you know, I like that. At the start of the match, Evan gets to do some serving to Homicide, like avoiding some offense and doing some necessary flips and gloating. So Homicide is sufficiently triggered by that. So he rips off one of the turnbuckle covers and teases hitting Jack with it before the ref takes it away. So Homicide and Jack Evans is definitely a fun dynamic. I can only really think of one singles match between them that they have later in 2005 but it's a pretty fun dynamic um um like jack even stops homicide running the ropes by sudden by doing a sudden bit of break dancing um so i I actually think jack is probably at his like this is his best performance of the night in this match um you know um and uh romero actually takes a cue from jack because he like he's jawing with strong on the apron and 
he's so pissed that he actually throws Jack into the corner so he can tag Roderick Strong and they have like a big slap exchange. And watching those two exchange strikes, I have to admit, was pretty fun. So like that brought the match up for me. And they take it to the mat eventually and they're, you know, they're doing mat stuff. I thought the first 10 minutes had pretty good pacing. I thought, you know, um, Aries was really not in the match much at all. Um, during this time, so um, but the uh, everyone else like did a lot of like fun character work and stuff. Ares finally gets in for the first time at the uh, at the ten minute mark. Um, you know, does some uh, does some of his his spots, but he tags back out pretty quickly. You know, um, it, it, they were definitely like saving the Ares and Homicide stuff. Um, I guess because that's the main event of the the show two shows from now, but. Um, Homicide, like, so Ares is back in and they're trying to triple team him in the corner and Homicide attacks everyone in the Generation Next corner and the Pitbulls come in to double team Ares and it gets a little bit chaotic and, and so Strong has Homicide on the outside, the Pitbulls are fighting Ares on the inside and they do their little, like, corner, like, post drop kick thing that they do. Um, and then kind of settles back down with, um, Homicide and the Pitbulls in control. Um, and then Evans comes in, he does some of his, his flippies on, on Romero. Um, then the, then the Rottweilers, they take over on Evans. Um, Homicide hits like an Alabama slam, a slingshot. Um, Romero comes off the top while Evans is laying over Homicide's knees. Um, Evans is trying to fight back, but he's weak. Um, Homicide goes for a top row belly to back suplex, but Evans knocks him off and hits a moonsault like DDT thing or something that was supposed to be a DDT. At least the announcer said that it got a pop, whatever it was, but I it didn't, it didn't look right to me. Um, uh, strong comes in the ring. There's a, there's a, they, they do their three on three Donnie Brook. Um, Romero does a dive onto strong. Um, Aries ducks a clothesline by homicide and hits his like missile dive onto the pit bulls. Homicide does his tope cone helo on everyone. Evans does his own little flippy, although he hits everybody except for Reyes, but Reyes goes down anyway. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, no, I didn't actually. Yeah. Um, then it comes it comes down to um, uh, Aries versus Homicide briefly. Aries hits the Brain Buster. Um, Homicide hits an ace cutter off the top rope, hits the Lariat, gets two. Strong comes in, double knees to Homicide, um, and then Aries covers, but only gets two. Then the Pitbulls hit the knee drop over the knee. Homicide covers, but Jack Evans breaks it up with a 450. Reyes and Romero throw Evans onto the floor, and Ares comes up behind them and clotheslines them out of the ring. So now, so the so Homicide and Ares finish it off one on one. Ares escapes the cop killer once, but Homicide gets it on like right after that and gets the win. Um, you know, which is the right finish to set up a future title match. Um, I like the first ten minutes. I liked the you know the final few minutes. I thought the middle you know kind of dragged, which you know can happen sometimes. Um, I thought they worked hard, but I I don't know. I don't think it all came together into anything special. But it was I thought it was a good match, but disappointing considering the spot and the level of talent. Yeah, um, I thought this was. I think what you're. I would agree with your rating, like a three and a quarter, maybe, maybe three and a half, maybe. But it's not. It, it's the second best match of the night. But it's. But for a main event with this talent on, and this was a show like if this was the second or third match on a really good show, you'd be really happy with this kind of match. But the problem was this was a show that really at this point needed 
a really great match to kind of make the show. And, you know, it was just decent. It was just fairly good. And, but there's not a ton wrong. It's just, it just doesn't get to that next level. And again, it's weird to, to complain. I feel kind of bad complaining about these matches because I don't know how much the ring affected these guys, you know, and they're wrestling three times in one night. And I just, although those first round matches weren't long, um, uh, I, uh, I thought Jack Evans as usual, really good. Although my favorite part of the match, I did like that end sequence that you described, which was, you know, Aries kicks out of, uh, homicides lariat, which and Gabe on comedy goes, you know, Hey, that's what, uh, beat generico in the first round. And then Aries takes the demolition decapitation knee drop. And then get, and when Evan, and says him, Gabe's like, you know, hey, that's what uh, beat Vordell Walker in the second round. So I like the idea that Ares is able to survive the things that the Rottweilers used to win the first two matches. But then he finally, you know, meets his match with the cop killer, which is a move by this point that Homicide wasn't just doing all the time. It was actually more often than not, he wasn't using the cop killer. So to see it was like, holy shit. He breaks it out and, you know, beats the world champ with it. So I, I really like that end sequence. I like I like that. And the match that was in front of it was was fine and, you know, fairly good. It's just, again, fairly good uh, at this point in the show was just kind of a disappointment, honestly. And um, I wish I had more to say about this match. I, I felt uh, at times in this match, I felt like these two teams had chemistry. And at other times, I felt like there was just a little bit something missing. It was it was a weird up and down match for me in that sense. But um, after the match, we uh, we joined the Rottweilers backstage Romero has a check from Ring of Honor, so maybe Steve was right about expecting a raise if he won the tournament. I don't know why Romero is like flaunting a check. All of a yeah, they, they just they just don't really make any of that stuff clear. Yeah, um, Homicide says he wants the world title. He wants a title shot against Aries, so he's basically saying, without really quite saying, that's what he's going to use his match that he gets to book on. Uh, Homicide suggests that the Pitbulls should go after the tag champs, but. Um, Romero seems to indicate that he and Reyes are interested in other matches. Like Reyes, Romero kind of like blows them off. Like, eh, like he's, which seems like kind of shitty. Like the guys that just lost the tag titles probably shouldn't be like, eh, I don't want to go for the tag titles. I don't know. That, that seemed kind of weird to me, but I don't yeah. remember what they use their matches for. So I know that Romero uses it for a title shot at Danielson in, much later in the year. Um, I don't remember what Reyes uses it for. Uh, there, you know what I think there might have been. There might have been like one random Pitbulls tag title match, but that might not be until like 2007. I don't remember, so I I don't remember if Reyes uses it before that or not. Um, so like, yeah, this is is this the last Pitbulls match together besides the uh, that 2007 match I just mentioned? It it might be and. Yeah, I think it might. I should have looked that up because I remember thinking, yeah, this is this is kind of the end of the of an era for the Pitbulls and Ring of Honor, an incredible era, Matt. But um, yeah, I, I think this promo. One thing that really <laughs> kind of sets hits home for me is like the Rottweilers. I realized wanting to keep them strong, but like it is kind of a weird choice for them to win this tournament because like I don't think anyone is on waiting on at in at this point in 2005 anyone was like super excited like what match is Rocky Romero or Ricky Reyes going to book for themselves like the only guy you're interested in this of uh, that that team in terms of oh they can book any match they want is Homicide you're not like anticipating the great Ricky Reyes challenge to come and it's but. not like they needed 
this match to get to a homicide title shot. Although now I don't remember is homicides is homicides trios tournament match the one with Aries, or did he get that because he beat Aries and then his trios tournament one is the one with uh, Carino later in the year. I, I don't. It's I honestly. I guess we'll find out. I'm not, all I know is he gets the Aries title match in two shows. He gets yeah. it at uh, the Best of the American Super Junior. Right. So, I mean, the, the way he's talking, he doesn't outright say, but he's certainly making it sound like he's going to use his title shot, you know, his booking match award, whatever you want to call it, to get that title shot. But yeah, I'm not sure. Um, so we cut to Sean Price for the last segment on the show. He finds the embassy as they're leaving the building. Prince Nana says Jay Lethal has something coming to him. Nana's also pissed that Punk is, quote, bugging them, unquote. I love the soft language of CM Punk is bugging them. He, you know, he told Rave earlier in the show that he's going to murder him and he chased them around with threw chairs at them, but May- he's bugging them. Maybe he means like that there's like, you know, putting like a like a, like a, like a, like a, like a bugging their office or their, like a Nana's, Nana's home or something like that and spying on him i don't think this was intentional but wouldn't it be funny if he held up like the bug spray again they used yeah. to show with, like oh we know something about bugging haha <laughs> yeah but anyway um at which so anyway at this point nana sa- that it says that punk is bugging them a hobbling cm punk chases them away with a chair yet again screaming that he'll make them famous and that is the weird way trios tournament 2005 ends kind of an abrupt weird ending for an abrupt weird show Yes. Um, Matt, I, we, we talked about this a little bit privately before we did the show, but, um, this is probably one of the worst Ring of Honor shows we've done. And it's weird. I, I think it does say something about how good Ring of Honor is, at least this era and how much we enjoy it, where I can honestly say that both this was a show it was one of the worst shows we've covered, probably, in my opinion. But also, it was not like a bad wrestling show. It was not painful to watch. The way I would categorize this is if this was if, if Ring of Honor at this point had been a like a WWE and every show was like a three hour episode of Raw or something, this would be an episode of Raw where you'd be like, that wasn't particularly great, but I don't regret sitting down to watch it. You know, a couple things happened. There was a title change. You know, there was one pretty good match. But at the same point, when you judge it by the standards of look at all this talent on the show and it was a 15 to $20 DVD you bought and waited for for weeks of the mail anticipating, definitely a disappointment in that sense. And again, I realize it's kind of shitty to say that because half the show was wrestled with a broken ring, but it's the show we got and it was not a great show. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say it's one of the worst shows we've ever seen because I think there were a number of like significantly lousy top to bottom shows in 2002 and a few in 2003 even, but definitely the worst since then. Um, you know, I th- I can't think of an a 2004 show that was worse than this one. Um, so yeah, I mean, and like yeah, but like you said, still not bad. Just like it had its merits. It had one match that I thought was very very good. Some other fun stuff, definitely some noteworthy stuff. You know, Prezak coming—that's a big deal. Um, some of the, uh, um, you know, just some of the the, the weird little uh, quirks to the show. But yeah, it's just not not that good. <laughs> like, just it's just, it's just so far below the standards that they set for themselves. That's the big thing. It's just they set a high bar, and this is the first time in a while where they really didn't come anywhere close to meeting it. Yeah, and. Um... This is one of the shows, so I would say 
if, if you even watch like 80 or 90% of Ring of Honor shows, but you just want to skip a few, this is one I think you could feel safe putting in that 10% that you skip. But I mean, if you're a completist like us, if you're watching every show, it, it's, you know, it's not gonna, you're not going to feel like you were cheated out of three hours of your life watching this. And like Matt said, like there was some, if you're like, like weird little trivia bits of historical things, you know, pure title changed hands, first date time, Dave Prezak commentated Ring of Honor. You know, there was a tournament that you get to see come to an end on this show. Feuds keep on going, you know, things happen. But um, that brings us to the end of the show, though. So if you want to contact us through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through, we have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs Forum. You can get in touch with us on Twitter. I'm, I'm at Trevor Dame, Dame spelled D-A-M as in Mother E, or at Mayor M-G-F for Matt. Um, we'll be coming back with our next episode. We'll be back to basics, which kind of makes me wish we had done the trios tournament. We had squeezed that in the end of last year, Matt, because then we could have said starting in 2021, we're going back to basics. Or if we had done a couple shows, been a little lazier, we could have said starting 2021, it'll be, it all begins. But instead it was trios tournament. Well, the next show that we do though, at least will be the very first through the years we have ever done. Not during the Donald Trump administration. Um, unless Q makes his move. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> okay. Of course. I want to make very clear that I'm kidding there, but... I just want to make clear, Matt's talking about Q, the, the Star Trek The Next Generation character, and not the uh, the fabled conspiracy uh, character. The greatest American hero. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so yeah, back to basics. It's a Ring of Honor B show. Some stuff happens. America uh, will be going back to basics. <laughs> we'll be we'll we'll be covering uh, Jack Evans wrestles Spanky. Uh, Steve Crino no shows the show. Um, we'll we'll talk about. There'll be things to talk about. I am sure. But until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.